Welcome to the Game Changer 00100 show. I'm your host, Game Changer. And today we have a special guest, um, a brother by the name of Ike. Now, I always have trouble with your last name. If you could help me with that, please. It's Ogiamye. The hard G part is the part to remember. And the rest just kind of flows with the... Is this me? Or... My, is that me? That's probably me. My bad, my bad, my bad. My... So. <laughs> no worries. I'll me. Okay, so you said um, Ogiamian? Yes. Okay, great. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, so we, we have a special guest, um, Ike Ogiamian, and um, we're going to talk about traits to avoid and to look for when making friends and allies for success. Is that a fair assessment of what we're going to do here? Yeah, I think so. I think, And I think that will be a, a great conversation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So what prompted this topic? Um, I know that you you are into, first of all, you you know are a successful man. Um, so you know it's great to bend your ear on this, but you know, from reviewing your channel, you're definitely into psychological or socio-psychological behaviors of, of both individuals and societies. So um really wanted to get your thoughts on this. I came across this this site, it says seven types of people to completely avoid. Um, now it's not necessarily about success. However, you know the goal and one of the many goals in life is to become successful at everything you do. And I started to think about how often I come across these particular personality types, um, and that I have learned to avoid them over the years. Um, but it's trial and error. And if I could help people you know, not have these errors in life, then I'm definitely going to do that. So um, I'll play them one by one and then get your take on each of them. Okay. Sounds good. All right. So here we go. Once again, this is by Top Think. It says uh, seven types of people to completely avoid fair use. And here we go. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Top Think. Today, we're going to learn about seven types of people to completely avoid. Now, let's begin. Number one, the projector. This toxic personality can wreak havoc on your happiness and self-esteem. Their judgmental personalities dish out criticisms left and right, dismantling your success as often as they can. If you look stunning in a new jacket, they're going to knock you down a peg. If you win an award, they're going to undermine your achievements. That's just the way their toxic mind works. But why do projectors insult, criticize, and attack the people in their lives? The projector has one fundamental flaw. Below that vicious exterior is an insecure and unhappy person. Well, to put it plainly, projectors just don't like themselves. They can't accept themselves for who they are. They're not proud of what they can do or what they've achieved. For many people, this kind of unhappiness motivates change. It encourages them to take action, to improve, and to grow. But projectors ignore their self-hatred by channeling their unhappiness into other people. They don't feel proud of or happy for their friends because they just can't experience those emotions for themselves. That's why projectors adopt a negative attitude toward the world around them. They convince themselves that the world is full of unhappy and self-loathing people. It's a negative and discouraging thought, but it makes projectors feel better about themselves. So, what happens when someone in their life seems happy? What happens when a friend or a partner begins to find success? Well, a projector makes it their responsibility to bring you down. They want you to be unhappy and unfulfilled, just like they are. But don't let a projector steal away your pride. Don't take their criticisms to heart, because they're not trying to help you. They're trying to even the... 
Okay, one moment. I, I tried not to let it play for two minutes just to, you know, help with the algorithm. But once again, fair use. Playing field. They may not realize how unhappy and unsatisfied they are, but you can. So get rid of the projectors in your life. You'll be a whole lot happier without their constant negativity. Okay, so your thoughts on projectors. Hmm. So the first thing is, it's more like projection as opposed to projectors, as in projection is something that we are all prone to, right? True, true. So, and for those of you who don't know, projection is when um, you feel a certain type of way and you attempt to make others feel that way. Yes. Yeah. And what I find to also be perhaps a, a, a subtle manifestation of the same thing is when you have a dislike or a judgment towards someone about something that they're doing. It could be anything from aesthetic to the, some kind of behavior or they're always a little like one minute late. Whatever it may be, something that you find particularly off-putting in the external world. Almost 100% of the time, you can always turn around and ask the question like, what is it about me that I don't like in that thing, right? So before we get into the dangers of projection and how, you know, the negativity of it and so on and so forth, to observe it in ourselves is the first thing I would say. And that a lot of times, whenever you have some kind of a judgment, and it's more of like this irrational judgment, and you know you, ha you have an argument for it, but it really is just... It comes up, it's, it becomes an irritation. This, the person is an irritant. Mm -hmm. And it, really, it's not based in much other than something that is within you that you struggle with. So having said that, right, then there are people who don't know how to handle that kind of stuff and they go spewing it everywhere, right? They criticize this. Or they feel just another way of me repeating, you know, I repeated what you said, you know, they feel a certain way, you want other people to, and they want other people to feel that way. Now, really, it's about not exercising critical thinking in real time, right? Mm -hmm. I would say, well, how does this affect success, right? Why do you want to stay away from this? Because these kinds of people tend not to see opportunities or people doing this are not really looking at situations and exercising real-time critical thinking. They're more like having these preformed judgments about people, places, scenarios, and it's usually on the negative side. It's not going to work out, right? These people never see the silver lining, they, which therefore they don't see the opportunities. Therefore, they don't, they don't try out for business. They don't gain the experience in terms of, you know, success or whatever. When I say business, you know, any kind of endeavor. There's, they have a reason why, you know, they shouldn't be a writer. And they a reason why, you know, I could have done this, but then that, you know, I uh, whatever. Mm -hmm. I could have got the job, but the white man held my internet back. Whatever. Shout out to O'Shea. Mm -hmm. that, all that kind of stuff. The way it's tied into success is that you need to be able to find people and follow them and collaborate with them and try to develop this capacity of real-time judgment in real time. Things life is going to come at you in many different kinds of ways. You can think about the Airbnb uh, founding, for example, I forget his name. I, really, I, um, I forget his name, <laughs> but he's, he, he was trying to solve a problem, right? It was like, okay, real time, solve a problem. This particular conference, we need air mattresses. We're going to do this kind of app thing. Um, some people would have just been moping at the situation, talking smack, 
and not really doing anything. It is in this kind of doing, playing, tinkering, uh, that, that kind of an attitude. Those are the people you're trying to stay uh, towards. And the people who cannot play, right, they literally can't. They can't have a good time. They never look at the positive side of things like, oh, how can I turn this into a game and uh, perhaps get the best outcomes? So that's why they're a waste of your time as well. And th that's my general kind of reaction to that whole projection thing. Okay. Um, so I, I see um, what you mean when you, when you talk about how projectors are destroying uh, themselves, you know, and that is, you know, because they, um, apparently a projection is a feel good mechanism, meaning that, you know, you, you're comfortable with where you are as long as you have this belief that everybody else is, um, is this way, or you can make others feel this way. Um, what about the effects as far as like, say, um, you're with a person, right? Or say you're a young man, um, and you become a Rhodes Scholar and somebody says that doesn't mean anything. Now that's obvious. That's obvious that they're projecting because they're not Rhodes Scholars. So, um, how should one in a position deal with that provided that they have, you know, um, that projectors are, a large percentage of their circle of friends and family members. Because I find that that happens far too often um, in the black community. And that is when people negate the success of others. And that's something that, at least according to this, is what projectors are doing. Mm -hmm. And I think I have to relate it back to success because success in this case will be the goal because it has to be related to some goal why would you want to avoid people as you say you know a large circle within your family or friends or so on and so forth you happen to be these projectors and they're trying to you know they're telling you that you're you know road ain't road scholar ain't shit or whatever so <laughs> the first thing is you need to avoid and you need to know how to cut people off. That that's the overall principle, right? That that is going to be put here. But okay. then you you got to cut them off for a reason, right? And that reason will determine who you cut off, who you cut off, right? So cutting people off for a reason vis-a-vis -vis success in this case is just kind of realizing because it, this is a question of time, mm -hmm. time, energy, and things like that. It's not a question of how you feel about them. Right. It's not like, you know, you, I, you, you hate these people or anything. But generally speaking, if you're going to do anything even remotely exceptional, nothing particularly crazy, just remotely exceptional within your particular circles, you're going to need to move on to the degree to which the people are not uh, being productive in that sense. So you, can, you can't be spending as much time with them or getting their particular idea pathogens in your ear, you know, idea viruses, negativity, again, going back to the whole, not, not uh, exercising that critical thinking to help you anyway. So you're spending energy, not on exercising any particularly helpful skill when in, in the social world it makes sense to go with people whom you're going to be at least exercising problem solving and people who exercise problem solving already have a particular view of reality, which is that they, exercise real-time thinking to try to tackle it in real time as opposed to these other projectors, right? So mm -hmm. what if you, if the goal, if a goal could be like, let's say success, I can think of others like peace of mind, generally speaking, um, 
uh, mental health, <laughs> for mm -hmm. all these reasons, you need to limit your time with people whom are, you know, in this particular negative category that we just defined, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you find somebody who is um, basically undermining your accomplishments um, in a passive aggressive way or just an aggressive way, then you yeah, you definitely want to limit your contact with these people. I know that that's a lot of the time easier said than done. These are often colleagues, family members and, you know, friends um, who are tightly connected in your own network of friends. But um, understand what they're doing and understand the negative effect that they can have on on your life. All right. So. All right, quick, let me just uh, read this. Um, I want to thank you, Alfonso. He said, W. Alfonso, he says, um, I'll check this one out later. I'm sure it would be good. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so um, next up, here we go. Number two, the gaslighter. Gaslighting is a form of emotional abuse that's recently come into the spotlight. People have begun to realize just how common gaslighting is, but this common kind of manipulation has been around for some time. So what is gaslighting? Well, to gaslight someone is to make them question their own judgment or perception. For example, you may believe that your friends and family love you, but a gaslighter may try to convince you otherwise. They may spread false information claiming that your friends and family talk about you behind your back. That false information creates distrust. It damages your relationships with your friends and family, and that gives the gaslighter more control over your life. And hey, that's ultimately what a gaslighter is after, control. They want you to doubt yourself. They want to make your decisions for you, so they force you to rely on them. When you depend too much on a gaslighter, they begin to take over your life. Avoid this vicious cycle at all costs. Don't let anyone make you question your own sanity. People will try to spread self-doubt. Gaslighters will tell you that you're ruining everything or that everything is your fault, but it's not. There's a reason you feel confused and frustrated by these moments of uncertainty. It's because someone is trying to manipulate you. So instead of falling for their tricks, just make some space. Take some time to think on your own because you may have a gaslighter in your life. Number three. The okay, so gaslighter, your thoughts? Gaslighter, that's, uh, that's a trippy one. That's a crazy one mm -hmm. because behind the guys gaslighting um <clears throat> behind the gaslighting technique there is a fundamental purpose which is control right mm -hmm. and then it's a question of how does one resist this control now this is enticing to one in various degrees what I mean is there are people whom like the social thing and can therefore be ensnared by social trappings and, oh, listen to this person or that person is my friend or, you know, in other words, people who are more, more prone to, you know, social manipulation, right? Mm -hmm. If whatever spectrum you're on on that, you should know. This is, we're looking at different personalities or personality traits from a from a negative kind of thing, people to avoid and so on and so forth. And therefore, it makes sense that we're pointing out that personality and knowing your personality is key. So within this range of how extroverted or introverted, how extrinsically motivated versus intrinsically motivated you are, you need to mm -hmm. know where you are because 
then you know the particular points. You know the weak points. You know where you're exposed. You know where you can be attacked. You know the disadvantages, in other words, of your particular psychological type. So know how much you're easily swayed by this kind of a social thing. And then another thing is you need to be able to def develop that capacity again, the capacity about real-time critical thinking and um, seeing the universe as a place where you can take action, right? You need to be develop that so that that gives you almost a shield against the opinions of the kinds of people who would want to then gaslight you because their opinions should not even matter, right? Oh, well, you, they're coming to you, telling you this, telling you that. It's like whatever story they're painting and you're, you need to be able to create a certain level of space between story and, you know, your reality, you know, whatever story they're saying, right? And it shouldn't mm -hmm. matter that much. In other, in other words, you should be practicing something, which is, again, that real-time critical thinking, thinking that the world is a place for positive action, positive meaning enacting, active, right? Um, as opposed to just some kind of social weird stagnation and so on and so forth. Seeing where you are, how, how, um, how prone you are to fall for this trap, and then also developing some independence. And I described a particular way of dependent, developing independence in, in this case. And then there are other ways such that their ability to control, which is what is behind that whole gaslighting technique, mm -hmm. is not uh, effective, that you know, you're immune to it, if you will. Okay, so being being self-assured um, and yeah, under and being self-confident and you know self-certain and things like that will help you to understand how to avoid gaslighting. I get it, um, and yeah, I I definitely agree with that. Um, it's interesting that uh, separating one from one's social circle um, is used as a method to control them. You know, mm. like I. I don't see how one would think to do something like that. You know, like say um, you have a circle of seven friends and you bring in an eighth one. And it is just for everybody to to kind of give an example of of how it works. Um, so you bring an eighth person into this circle of friends. Now, this eighth person, instead of for wanting to be a part of the circle or a part of the group, they want to disconnect everyone from you and make that um, connected to them. Uh, leaving you, uh, leaving them as your only friend. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they can do that by changing your friend's perception of you and your perception of your friends. Um, it only has to work on one end. Like, say, if, you know, they say such and such thinks that you're ugly and then you behave towards that person um, with the understanding of that, oh, this person thinks I'm ugly, you may become a little more hostile and then this, and then the eighth person goes to them and say, hey, you notice how they've been a little hostile towards you lately? And then next thing you know, their relationship is starting to wedge and sever. I've seen this happen real time. Um, so it's better to avoid that. In fact, um, one method that I use personally, and uh, I come to a conclusion uh, with this icon that I'll share with you after this. Um, one method I use, early uh, when meeting someone new is I come to the understanding that if a person is um, speaking bad about somebody who think that they're your friend, who think that they're their friend, then they are speaking bad about you. 
So mm-hmm. you should pretty much ignore each and every single thing that you said, because like, wait a minute, this person is talking bad about their own friend and I'm their own friend. You mm-hmm. should instantly come to that conclusion. Um, that's just that's a rule good. of thumb. Yeah. Um, so I think growing up, growing up poor, um, that we come across a lot of, we come across a much higher concentration of people with these particular personality types, uh, personality types that hold people behind um, because you grow up in a community where people are held behind, um, not not just by, you know, maybe limitations or laziness or whatever reason, but they're held behind um, because of their own personality issues between friends and families. I think that um, people born into poverty come across these personality traits a lot more um, frequently than those who are born wealthy. But once again, I only have one perception of that. That's just my thoughts on that. Um, And yeah, and it definitely does change the ways in which they can limit you or the tools. I mean, yes, the environment does matter, but it does make sense too that, you know, there may be a higher concentration of those left behind there. And mm-hmm. that the, perhaps the positive people also find their way to escape. And the, hence there's a higher concentration of, of the people using these methods. Yeah. So the, you're not the only one that says that. So I think that uh, it must be correct or there, there's some truth to it, as they say. Okay. Okay. Appreciate it. All right. So Demetrius says, um, watching while writing my paper. Hey guys. Hey, yeah, I remember those days. Um, thanks a lot, Dimitri. Okay. So snuggle six, six, eight says, um, let's see, what did I miss? Something far and, um, something far. And how would this conversation help the mindset of the community to reach to higher heights? Well, I mean, to avoid toxic people in community helps the individual. And a community is a collective of individuals. So that's how. And also to uh, seek out these personality traits in yourself. So you, you know, you're not toxic to others. Because I think that a lot of people are doing these things instinctually and not really consciously. Therefore, they're... Um, they may not even know that they're doing it. Like they may not, they may be projecting and they not know that they're projecting. So that's how it helps. All right, so number three. So number three is labeled the backstabber, let's see. Backstabber. Backstabbers look like trustworthy friends. On the outside, they seem like people you can rely on. They say, you can trust me. But then when you leave the room, they betray you. They spill your secrets and vulnerabilities. They act like different people, and you realize your friendship means nothing to them. Backstabbers don't value the trust or confidence that other people place in them. They see each of their friends as pawns in a game. They act like your friend until the time is right, and then they throw you under the bus. So how do you know if you have a backstabber in your life? Think about the secrets you trade with your friends. They may know everything about you, but how much do you know about them? Backstabbers know a lot more than they tell. They dive into the vulnerabilities of others without exposing their own weak spots. This dynamic creates a lopsided trust. Yeah, you trust them, but they don't trust you, and it becomes easy for a backstabber to betray you. You have something to lose, but they don't. For trust to mean something, it has to be mutual. Trust is an exchange of weaknesses. You both have something to gain and something to lose. There's another easy way to pick out a backstabber. Just think about which of your friends have betrayed you in the past. 
If this person has broken your trust before, there's a greater chance it'll happen again. Yeah, accidents do happen, and it's important to remember that people do make mistakes. But if your friend intentionally breaks your trust, especially more than once, they're making a choice to hurt you. Backstabbers are often huge gossipers. They'll gossip about everything to everyone, except they never gossip about you, right? Wrong. Gossipers almost always gossip about even their closest friends. And when the gossiper is caught, they'll deny everything. Number four, the bad lip. Okay. So thoughts on that one? The backstabber. Well, you know, there is something that comes to mind with that whole backstabber thing. Don't tell me it's a song about OJ's. <laughs> Smile in your face. <laughs> so there is something about um, arenas where backstabbing is more prone to happen. Types of people and types of activity. Let, let's take, for example, politics, which I was okay. one end of the arena, right? In politics, there you don't have skin in the game as much, right? You don't have some kind of a business. You're, let's say you're a politician. You're spending other people's mm -hmm. money, right? Right. Um, you don't really have the experience that come with, you know, you're not a plumber. You're not a account. You're like, you know, you're not doing something whereby there's immediate feedback with, with the market, right? You... You can't be a horrible plumber messing up anyone, everyone's toilet and last very long, right? Mm -hmm. However, you could be a total politician lasting in an arena of politics by doing things like backstabbing, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, manipulations of all those kinds. So the first thing that comes to mind with this backstabbing thing is to pay attention to certain kinds of arenas. And I would say that the distinction to draw between that works for arenas and people is to ask, where is the skin in the game that this person has? Where is the skin in the game that this particular knowledge base has? For example, it could be, um, let's say, physics. And you're like, okay, I know that this is kind of rigor rigorously tested in labs all over the world. Um, and there is immediate... There are reasons, game theoretic reasons, why people are incentivized to want to take down whatever the prevailing knowledge is, right? And say, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, I saw I was able to prove Einstein wrong or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So you're like, that's kind of where the, the kind of skin in the game that that is, that that, that, that has, okay? And then you, you compare different landscapes like that. I describe politics. Also describe certain kinds of like NGO, global, United Nations committee to save the whatever, right? Those kinds of places, you can find all kinds of people that, in other words, because of the nature of them, not to slam them, but that's those are the kind of areas where you can find more backstabbers and stuff like that, right? And how do you find the allies? Well, you're looking for people in this other arena more so. People who do things, and usually typically on a micro level, it's like if you're a microeconomist, economist, it's harder to bullshit, but it's very easy to bullshit macro stuff, big politics, large geopolitical, whatever. You can talk a lot of, because it's hard to test and who knows and blah, blah, blah. And so that's another kind of arena, uh, a way to like, when things get macro, it's easier to BS. And also when things get more and more political and social, it's also easier to do the backstabbing BSing thing. 
because mm-hmm. otherwise, as a plumber or as a surgeon, for example, you can't, you know, you, vis-a-vis your skill, vis-a-vis how you're interacting with the marketplace and the people, what people know you for, you're, you're not going to, uh, you're not going to find a lot of BSers in there. Anyway, so that's something that comes to mind in the sense that arenas and types of people, and they measure it with how much skin in the game is their endeavor or their personality. How much skin in the game do they put in? Is it all just fluff or is there some immediate feedback that they get from what they're putting out there? Okay. Okay. So you're saying stay away from people who um, excel in careers where backstabbing is required. Um, meaning you gotta that- You got to at least watch them. Yeah. You got to at least like be suspicious, right? No, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I get it. Like, yeah. Like, you know, maybe law or something like that. But, you know, why would an automotive engineer do that when, you know, his life depends on his skill set, not necessarily- you know, his ability to bring down others. Huh, that's interesting. Um, do you think that some people backstab just because that's uh, a personality flaw? Like not, they like they don't need a skin, in, they don't have skin in the game, they just do it because, you know, I don't know. Yes, I would say that, you know, the re- those uh, sins of ours, they are not really... A question of missing the mark in the sense of trying to, or they're not only a question of missing the mark with, with, with regards to some kind of functionality. Like, well, I tried to do something, but I didn't do it right. Mm-hmm. Um, things like backstabbing could be completely divorced of a particular end or a purpose, right? It's more of um, a need for control, right? Right. And this need for control typically comes from, and it sounds maybe pop or, or silly, but really, when you need to control like that, again, what you need to do is watch yourself, okay? There's something going on mm-hmm. to this person, and, and we're saying that it is, anyone can be prone to this, maybe some people more or less, but that need to control is something that you can see manifested in this or that area of your life, right? So... In that regard, whenever you're trying to, you're needing to control, watch yourself, okay, as the first step. Then the immediate, the question that immediately comes up with this whole thing is, how finely tuned are your instruments of watching yourself? How well skilled are you in the art of watching yourself? Because watching yourself is a big part of a not participating in this BS, these kinds of traits. B being able to keep people very far away from you who do those kinds of things being able to spot those kinds of spots, right? So it's like, how finely tuned are you at the art of watching yourself and mm-hmm. seeing what's going on in there in a granular fashion in terms of what's motivating you? Not just, oh, I feel a certain way towards this person. It's like, well, what does it feel like literally? Like, is it in your chest? Is it is it a, is there a tightness in your stomach? Is there just, your, is the back of your ear just hot when this person is around? Watch those things and then find out that you also have space for freedom within that. In other words, that you can watch those things happen and you can make a better decision. Hmm. Better decision could even mean maybe you still want to manipulate this person or whatever, but you're not being guided by just raw feelings, right? You are able to watch, in other words, the bodily manifestation in this case of what jealousy or whatever may may, may be. So rather than just act, you need to be able to watch yourself and look and be like, okay, heart rate raising up, okay? Um, 
certain kind of tightness in my chest, things going on in my head, flashing in my head about why this person is a dumbass or something or whatever reasons, so on, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Maybe the ringing in my ear even goes up, right? But watch those things rather than be lost in those things because that's what gets everyone in trouble when you're quote unquote lost in your feelings or lost in your head, right? I got you. So, okay. So you're saying that um, you have um, that humans have like a sense when these particular, when a toxic person is near them. And, and I agree with that definitely. Um, And that they should pay attention to it. Yeah. Yeah. If you're watching yourself in that way, then you'll be able to kind of, you're able to see the subtle signs in someone else because they're just, you know, things that we pick up and then you'll be able to just know, you, you yeah and that's why it's about people to avoid right because it, it, it just ends up well when you spot this run away that's the <laughs> that's the summary yeah, there. pretty much okay um melody says or sweet melody speaks excuse me says um i actually know someone who has all of these personalities uh you're presenting smh uh shaking my head as uh, she's dangerous and jealous of me yeah yeah, and it, a lot of these personality traits do seem like like a catty female, Nana in the whatever you want to call it. They they definitely seem like it would be commonplace there um, that they the gossiping that you know the gaslighting. So yeah, I could I could definitely see this being common amongst women. Uh, thanks, mm-hmm. Melody. Thanks a lot. All right, number four. Listener. Next, we have one of the most frustrating personalities on this list. Bad listeners have one thing in common. They care far more about their own thoughts than the words coming out of your mouth. In fact, they're so buried in their own thoughts, they can barely register anything you say. Bad listeners show their poor listening skills in a few different ways. They give lackluster one-word answers. They talk constantly about themselves, even if the conversation isn't about them. They interrupt other people whenever they want to because they want to hear themselves talk. Now, all of these bad habits tell you the same thing. This person doesn't care about others, and they probably don't care about you. But that's not fair. You deserve to be heard. You deserve to make friends who listen when you talk. Anyone who isn't willing to give you their attention doesn't deserve yours. Number five. Okay. Any thoughts on that one? Oh, yeah. I think maybe I start from the practical end in terms of things to do in order to be a better listener. Mm -hmm. So... In other words, this whole bad listener person, it's like it's a lot of us in a lot of times, even if we're handling it in real time. But we the struggle, in other words, is not something that is unfamiliar to us. In other words, the struggle to get lost in our own thoughts. Right. Right. The struggle just not to, uh, you know, the struggle of listening and then the danger that you may just drop, drop the struggle and just like not listen uh, or your mind wanders or something like that. Right. So it happens to all of us. That's number one. Number two is what do you do? So here's what, here's a very good skill. Great in meetings, sales, and also, okay, so basically you repeat what the person says to you in your head. And also after the last phrase that the person says, actually repeat the last phrase to them out loud. Basically, it's a simple kind of thing like this where you know, the first principle of you repeating something back to them is is, is is salient, but then repeating it in your head is key. Because basically what you're trying to do is you're trying to talk is going to happen in your head while someone else is talking. But if you're talking to or someone is telling you a story, you know what? We Then we took the Uber to the restaurant on Fifth Street. 
and then you're thinking in your what you, what you what you should be thinking in your head according to this advice, and I, I it works very well. Is just think, okay, they went to the Uber on Third Street. The exact words that they say to you, just repeat it back in your head. You'll find that actually, it's almost like it's almost like you're double you're reading and then you're making sure you comprehend, right? That kind of a thing, right? So mm -hmm. you hear it through your ear and then you you go through it, but just by mechanically repeating, okay, it also silences the voice in your head, right? Okay. So rather than whatever is going to be going on, you're just repeating what the person is saying. And then also you repeat out loud the last part of their phrase. So if they say, and then when we got to, came out of the Uber and we got into the restaurant, we had the salmon, you know, the one with the weird strawberries. And then you literally say, oh, the salmon with the weird strawberries. You simply just repeat what they're saying. This is more than just a listening technique. It's a persuasion technique. It's a way of getting people to talk more about themselves technique. You get, so it's like, they say, oh, well, the, the and then we had the salmon. And you're like, oh, and you had the salmon. And then, yeah, the salmon. And then obviously we're eating the salmon, blah, 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 blah. And we ended up in the wrong hotel. And then you say, you ended up in the wrong hotel. You know what I'm saying? Like, it is a very simple kind of systematic way, especially when you're doing kind of communication such as like sales or influence and so on and so forth. Things where you're kind of professionally communicating. You want mm -hmm. to kind of have these kinds of skills and so on and so forth. And obviously it comes in handy when you're just hanging out with your friends or in a cocktail party somewhere like someone is telling you something just repeat what they're saying in your head and then also because they feel very well heard this this very technique this simple technique you might even be able to get the intuition and see why it works right or i don't know what, what do you think about it so far i'm sorry i wasn't listening <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, that. <laughs> no um i definitely should do that more often um and um, for myself. And um, it's a technique that I definitely need to try. The reason why I say that is because I'm really bad with names. Mm. So uh, just with that aspect alone, somebody introduced themselves and maybe it's because I worked in customer service and, you know, you meet a lot of people and you're never going to hear or see from them again. So, you know, it's like, hey, my name is Roger. And then next thing you know, hey, my name is Alan. My, you know, it's like, do I really want to remember 175 names a day? So maybe maybe I had that technique or I had a method of doing it and I just like completely did it. Like, you know, I, I'll go to a party or something, meet a bunch of people and and forget their names. So I think it would be helpful with that. But um, I, the technique that you give, it definitely helps to um, assure people that you that you were listening. Um, I prefer as far as that goes, I prefer to give like a overview of what they said versus the last sentence. Because with me, when people give the last sentence, what it says to me is like, you know, they kind of uh, shifted out of focus and then heard the last, because I do that. I, I do that while I was in customer service. I would shift out of focus and then say, oh, okay, 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 okay. Oh, your 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 phone's not working. I can help with that. Like I, I did. So, so because I'm I'm used to that, I I give like an overview of all right. This is this is you know the overview of what you just said, and also put like something in front of it. Like okay, I get it. You're having this particular trouble in this particular arena because you know this happened, and you know to give them and also to assure that I was listening to myself. You know their confirmation means okay, I I did get an accurate overview. So yeah, definitely. I mean, whatever whatever technique um, 
keeps you focused on the conversation is definitely helpful because you don't want to give the impression, especially if you work in sales or interpersonal interactions of any type, you don't want to give the impression that you're not paying attention to um, the person that, that you're with. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 um, I, I sometimes struggle with that because my mind tends to wander and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, so I, I try to make sure that even if it wanders, it's not noticeable. Um, Blah, blah, blah. I can usually catch on to what they're saying, but, you know, I, I you know. So I use this technique. Yeah, I, I'm always I'm talking to myself in my head just about what they're saying. And I find that it's not so important. When you're doing this thing, you're going to find that it, um, it's. The thinking about what you should say next, the way you should react to it and so on and so forth. Is more automatic than you think. Mm-hmm. Such that if you just put more of your. Conscious attention on what they're saying and repeating it to yourself, just kind of all the, the words just coming out of their mouth. Okay. The words, you're just repeating the words coming out of their mouth. Mm-hmm. You will be able to come out with something without actively constantly thinking like, okay, you know, let me see what I'm going to say next. And while they're talking, it's like, yeah, not so much, you know, that, and also it's a, it gives the conversation a different kind of a flow in and of itself. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's an exchange. And, and I agree. Now, this is going to be a little off topic, but um, I want to touch on this while we're somewhat close to it. Um, in a, when it's not an interaction, when it's a informational or you know a teacher-student relationship or a lecture or something like that that you need to gain from, um, what would you suggest then? Because you're not really repeating back to the lecturer as far as maintaining active listening skills. I, I can give my technique, but... Um, mm. Okay, we'll start with mine. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. Um, I take more notes than I read. And that's because just writing it down keeps me engaged with what the professor or, or doctor or whatever, the lecturer, or even if I'm, you know, um, looking at something on Google, a tutorial on Google, like taking the notes, just just the process of writing it down. Because uh, my handwriting is horrible and I hate rereading it, to be honest with you. But um, that keeps me focused on it because, you know, you can't drift onto something else like, you know, damn she fine um, if you're writing it, unless you write down damn she fine or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's my technique. I was wondering if you had any that you'd like to share. Actually, that is exactly what I do too. So- Oh, okay. Great minds. <laughs> In addition, yeah, because like um, my, my eyesight is not so great. So it's like seeing what they're writing. Not, so, not I listen very closely and then I try to transcribe, paraphrase, you know. So note taking was something also that was kind of emphasizing like early high school type stuff or mm-hmm. a little bit pre-high school because it's a different system over there. Um, kind of you listen to the teacher lecture, you form these notes, you actually even go back and look at the textbook and then it's almost like you're creating this document like you're writing your own you know little journal you add to the to the stuff um and that helps a great deal because also there is this kind of a memory of important parts of the page like a number you know oh they check it every 30 days and you remember 30 days the way you wrote it in that part of that page there right and without that page all you have is the hearing that you did have so we're looking into the future now and seeing how this also helps in terms of you recalling the event. But yes, while being present in the event, taking notes for me is, is 100%. And then also using the ears. But I struggle. Where I struggle is if I don't find that the thing that is going on important. In other words, 
I tend right. to be able to, to focus attention and then, you know, do the writing thing, blah, blah, blah. Take very nice notes, use nice rulers for everything because I, it, it, that engages you. So it's not just like, ah, oh, I'm just going to like sloppily write. It's like, no, I want to write with, in the lines. I'm going to use rulers and stuff like that. Right? Okay. Because it, it helps you focus more. It gets more things going. The more of yourself you want invested in an activity, the more it has more momentum and it will continue in that particular direction, right? But anyways, yeah, those, th th those, th those are my additional thoughts to the fact that I basically do the writing technique as well. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Okay. I don't do the ruler thing. Maybe, maybe I need to improve on that. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's more of an engineering thing because of, you know, yeah, rather than draw freehand because we're drawing a lot, just sketch or whatever a lot. Right. So yeah. I'm an engineer as well, but um, not, not you're, mechanical. Software, right? you're right. Software, not mechanical. I, I couldn't, and it, it's because I failed in that. I started off as a uh, mechanical engineering, mm. um, but I, I, drafting was not my thing. Uh, art of any type just wasn't my thing. And I came up in the day, you know, before they had the software to do it. So we were doing it by hands, you know, with all the different pencils and, you know, lead density and stuff like that. And um, and I was like, you know something, this is not for me. And then 3D perceptions. Yeah. Um, but it was required that I take some software and I was like, OK, I can I, I like this. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, I um, it, it's a. Uh... The drafting aspect of it is what got me out of architecture as well. So basically, I was going for architecture before. Okay. Well, what I mean, like the tedious aspect of certain doing certain kind of work, produce what I, I call a busy work, because I preferred. I was like, you know what? I can go to the engineering side, and then I can go do physics, mechanics, thermodynamics, fluid mechanics, all these different kinds of things, and understand what stuff is, as opposed to, well. We need you know buy this eight by whatever canvas and do this particular project on it and then make sure you have all the right pencils and right lines. Like I'm a little bit of a kind of messy in that way in terms of like I I'm like okay I hover above a particular issue, a topic, a subject, whatever it may be. I get the basics of it, and I don't want to spend any more time than I think is necessary to just get the basics. Later fine tuning of certain skills or whatever, not so important to me. In other words, I don't learn by that kind of induction where I need many, 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 many different points to go and do induction. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm more deductive. Like, okay, here's the general principle here. Let me Now let's move on. So engineering seemed to embody that more. And yes, I completely understand all that drawing stuff. But I do like drawing, though. But it, to okay. me, it was like too busy. Like, let me go learn the actual physics. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, same here. I actually... Uh, would like to be able to draw. I just, I'm just not, it's it's not in my skill set. I, I guess the same thing that makes my handwriting bad is the same thing that, you know, keeps me for um, being, you know, that type of engineer architect. Absolutely. All right. So the one says, a uh, good topic. Also, like I just noticed your channel um, video dedicated to Nietzsche, um, will to power. And I will also place in quotation marks, uh, check that out. Salute Alpha Kings. Okay. Appreciate you. Appreciate you. And yes, I got the, I got the pun. All right. And Melody says, hit that like button. Thanks a lot, love. Um, and yeah, please hit that like button, hit that like button people. All right. Number five. The peacock. Peacocks care way too much about what other people think. They govern their lives according to other people's opinions. Why? Because they can't tell the difference between attention and self-worth. 
They broadcast an overconfident, boisterous exterior, although the person underneath is very insecure. That's why they try so hard to be the center of attention. They think being liked is the same thing as liking yourself. Making friends with a peacock can be frustrating. They seem like good people at heart, but they crave status above all else. They think of everything in terms of external value or social charisma. That's why many peacocks become bullies and betray their friends. If you're not cool enough for them, they'll turn on you. Peacocks have narcissistic tendencies that are usually easy to spot. If they're always standing in front of the mirror or care way too much about their social media profiles, this person may be a peacock. The best thing you can do is to make some space. Over time, many peacocks leave their shallow cravings behind, but until that happens, it's best to keep your distance. Number six. Okay, thoughts on a peacock? That is very interesting. Now, this is the one where there is, um, I believe, within the particular model, a, a um, version of the Myers-Briggs model, that, that whole personality thing, INTP, ENTJ, so on and so forth. The There is something called, you know, extroverted sensing. In other words, your, how much importance you put to certain kinds of aesthetic um, um, pre presentation. Just It could even be like the f formal things such as, well, the table should be set this way, or your idea of what a well-dressed looks like or your that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. There is a obviously a varying degree. Now, that thing, though, I think it varies independently, right, of any of these other possible, uh, shall we say, uh, sins, right, or possible traps or possible proclivities. So the dimension of how important do I am I like for example me myself I do the extroverted sensing thing a lot right in other words I don't just make a nice leg of lamb roast it's going to be presented well as well it's going to be paired with a nice wine because I found over trial and error plus with various models that this is the best experience for it right some people are like nah just roast the fucking lamb it doesn't have to be that way why you have to wear that shirt Screw your jacket. In other words, I do the extroverted sensing thing, to, you know, so on and so forth. But I think that it varies in a different, um, it is its own particular dimension. You know, let's say it's the Z dimension or whatever. Okay. And then you can still have, you know, whether or not you are a vacuous person, you know, because there seems to be a, a an intersection between, oh, this person is a, pe this person has a lot of extroverted sensing. So they're kind of a peacocky person, but that's also all they care about, right? That's the uh, nexus here being pointed to, because I think that just being a peacock in and of itself, uh, there's, not, there's, there's nothing, you know, it's just, <laughs> I call it just a certain either, but let me, if I will then get in, in deeper into this whole thing about aesthetics. Okay. If you could sure. permit me one second here. Um, aesthetics are important because we, they are inspirational. If you think about play, of all kinds, such as tightrope walking, gymnastics, ballet, soccer. They demonstrate prowess, right, of a human capacity above and beyond what is necessary, right? Like, uh, you don't typically, the typical human doesn't need the, the, gym, the skills that the gymnast has, right? Sure. <laughs> but it looks nice. 
And it is play. It is aesthetically pleasing. It is superfluous. Some might say, well, that's just therefore irrelevant. I say no. In other words, this is a case. I'm making a case for aesthetic uh, considerations of all kinds. And I'm linking it with play. I'm linking it with all those other kinds of superfluous things. And I say that they are a manifestation of human prowess above and beyond. In other words, well, you could put on a sackcloth, but how about if I were to make it with this other material? How about if I were to gather a whole bunch of silkworms and extract this thing from them? It's very hard and it takes a lot of expertise just to make the shirt. Uh, you know, how about if I go to the core of the earth? In other words, these things are playful. When viewed in the right perspective, these are the things that make us human. These superfluities, the extras. It's like there's no reason to be the gymnast. There's no reason to all these. So I'm, I'm, I'm using that active landscape, in other words, the landscape of athletics and sports, because it's more easily seen. But the same thing exists in the landscape of uh, whether it's a nicely had dinner party with everyone in their tuxes or whatever it may be. You are playing that same human game. It's what makes us different from the pigs. It's the reason why you don't just eat your potatoes off the floor with your face, right? You still want some form to stuff as a human being. And I would say that oh, you're already, therefore, in the direction of, uh, of acknowledging the importance of aesthetic considerations. Okay. Okay. Um, now, you, you're right. I agree with you um, definitely um, on the portion where they said that where he said that is different than all the others. And I think that this is different in the sense that it does seem as though the peacock is most affected by the first four. Like if a person is a projector, if they're, um, you know, um, or if a person is a gaslighter, things like that, um, particularly gaslighter, if you are a peacock, you are overly concerned with how others think about you. So a gaslighter can, you know, tell you something or manipulate you. Um, and since you value the opinions of others so highly and you tie your own self-worth next to their opinions, they can have a devastating effect on your on your sense of self-worth. So, um, yeah, it seems like Peacock is more likely to be a victim of these particular um, behavior types, the previous behavior types. And in addition to that, um, it does seem as though because everything that was mentioned before seems to be a result of having low self-worth besides the active listings. But outside of that, everything else seems to be a result of having a sense of low self-worth and you want to either project that on, onto others or you want to control others or you want to take others down through backstabbing. You know, um, either way, you have a sense of low self-worth. Now with the peacock, um, having your self-worth tied to everyone else's view of you, um, it's fluctuating. Mm -hmm. Like people want it to be like a, a perfect X, Y linear upward thing. And that's not going to be the case. It's going to be ups and downs, even if it, it even if there are ups, you know, mm -hmm. or even if the the tangent line is um, is steering upwards, you're still going to win when you're down, you know, or if your social media value is down or what have you, you're going to feel a lot worse because let's face it, you, your, your self-worth is tied to that. You know. So self-worth is, or shall we, there, there are many directions from which you can look at this identity thing and you will call it something different. You may call it identity when looked at it this way, you call it self-worth when looked this way, you call it ego when looked at it in a particular way. Mm -hmm. But it has content. Um, it, in other words, it is tied to 
something always. It has to be tied to something. And then it is on you to know how loosely it is tied and how to decouple it from on the unnecessary aspects of things. What I, what I say is, I tend to say, look, you need an identity, okay? You need, an, you can't, you know, that's how we are. Like, that's mm -hmm. how we operate. Sure. It's, almost like, it's like our software, okay? So I need to be I with a particular history and a, da, 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 and a sense of self-centered there, me. Um, but what is the most basic structure of that thing such that there's, such that you can leastly, at, in an easy way, decouple any superfluous, additional, unnecessary aspects, unnecessary aspect things that your identity is tied to, right? Mm -hmm. So it has to do with basic uh, principles. So it's like you are brave as opposed to you being tied to the story of, well, I'm the son of my father. He was a general, whatever. And uh, in our family, we're a family of warriors. It's different from having as part of your identity, the a veneration for bravery and you follow bravery so it doesn't matter if you're your father's son or your whatever it doesn't matter like you have a principle so in other words in every story every kind of identity game that we're playing there's usually a, a moral a principle something you figure out if that's what you're really all about and actually pursue that actively then it's you're not so tied with the fluff now <laughs> I, I wanted to just add that aspect in terms of um identity you know, and how it is tied to something and has to always be tied to something. So in the case of it being tied to this extroverted, extroverted sensing, which I like, you know, make the, the, the scene, being a showman, for example, mm -hmm. right? Because I'm a showman as well, introverted typically, but then I like to put on a show as well, do the music thing or do a sales type stuff. The... You have to be aware, this showman person, of the relationship between your identity and this particular thing. What exactly it is about this particular thing, in other words, that are principles. So maybe there's a principle of excellence, right? In anything that you do, any of your arts, there's a principle of creativity. So you embrace creativity and excellence rather than, oh, it's about the way I look and the way they see me. It's no, it's about creativity and excellence, right? Right. Creativity and excellence is is more stable. It's more of a, the backbone of the structure, right? And it's also less. It has all these doesn't have all these extra frills that could be attacked, or whereby you can be exactly be attacked by people whom are doing gaslighting and those other things, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, I like what you're saying about self centered, and and it really puts something. I never really, um, you know, gave it much thought. Like so. I'm going to try to put, you know, as I told you, I did before, um, put what you were saying in a nutshell and say, when you're talking about um, being self-centered, like, do you see yourself in your own position or do you see yourself as relative to others? Say, for example, you're on a football field and you are standing on the 50 yard line. Um, do you say that I am standing 10 yards away from such and such and 20 yards away from this person? Or do you just say I am on the 50 yard line? I guess that's that's the difference between seeing yourself from your own point of view versus seeing yourself as relative to others. Yes, that 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 uh, that construction will be a, a good uh, analogy there. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think it, it, it is helpful. Yeah. Go ahead.
No, no, no. I was just, I was thinking like, you know, um, as far as um, how it gives you a healthy perception of, of things. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to think further how it may give you a unhealthy one. I'm, and, you know, do you, do you think that having that seeing yourself not relative to others, how that may, or excuse me, actually, no, the analogy I just, okay. So here's the analogy I was going to use. Mm -hmm. Um, it would be good seeing yourself relative to others if you are in a race, you know, and, you know, a um, hundred yard dash or something like that. Then, of course, you want to see yourself relative to others. You want to say I'm in eighth place, not that, you know, I am 60 yards um, away from the starting point and 40 yards away from the from the finishing point. You want to see yourself relative to, you know, am I in first place or eighth place? Um, however, that doesn't apply because you it's it's an actuality. It's not a person's perception of you like you actually are. So, um, yeah, I think, yeah, that's actually that's excellent <laughs> advice. Of course, I'm going to give it, you know, some some strength test and see like, hmm, OK, how can I break this? Let me let me let me let me give a smoke test to this. But I think it's it can it has a there is a dis or how can it go wrong? OK, right. One way, well, let's not even talk about that way because it's one way is just to call it something else. One way is if you just change the name of it, and I don't think that's a valid thing. If you just call it selfishness now, and then you say it's a bad thing, right? Um, you know, but really, though, it is a capacity to um, have the ability to see reality and get out certain absolutes out of it. Like what exactly is going on? Not what I think about it. Not that the person doing it is my uncle. Not just like what exactly is going on. And then versus how, what am I going to do? Okay. And in between these two things lies my physiological reaction to things. What is going on? Right. What do I do? And in between it has to be mediated by, I have all these physio physiological reactions to what is going on. Mm -hmm. So the ability to kind of keep people at arm's length, see, you know, don't, you know, and kind of just look at yourself relative to some kind of a bigger scheme or just comparing yourself with yourself from the past or whatever it may be, but putting yourself at, at the center, what it can allow you to do is justify things because the capacity that from which this stems is that capacity to, to separate yourself from yourself in a little bit, in a certain way. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so you can justify certain things to yourself uh, by simply going cold in certain areas and not and choosing not to pay attention to it, right? So in other words, you could use it. You could you could become this Zen monk Hitler. In other words, it's theoretically possible, where mm -hmm. all your Zen energy, all your focus, all that stuff is used to just calm down your conscience, be a more laser focused killer, right? Mm -hmm. There is nothing in certain techniques that necessarily dictates the manner in which this technique or tool will be used. Now, because of human nature and certain societal types of things, people tend to use it in a certain way. But I would argue that, no, there's nothing really in sharpening these particular skills, meditation and uh, being able to see yourself separate from others. About, about what really fundamentally underlies those capacities can be used in evil ways if you wanted to be a psychopath, for example. I think mm -hmm. psychopaths are very well skilled in all these things. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that's kind of what I'm saying. Okay, I get, I get what you're saying. All right, and um, let's do number six. The saboteur. 
This dangerous personality can and will stand in your way of success. Many accomplished people have grown and competed alongside intellectual rivals. A rival is someone you respect, admire, and compete with. But good rivals want to see each other succeed. That's what makes your rivalry worthwhile. You may fight tooth and nail against each other, but you ultimately push each other to improve. You chase your rival because you admire them, and they chase you for the same reason. On the surface, a saboteur acts like a rival. They compare their success to your success. They measure their accomplishments by your standards. But saboteurs don't push you to improve. Instead, they step on your toes. They tie together your shoelaces, and then they hope you fall flat on your face. Why? Because saboteurs refuse to be outdone. Like projectors, they feel insecure when other people outdo them. But unlike projectors, the saboteur is often lazy and unmotivated to succeed on their own. They discourage the success of other people because they don't want to put in the work. All right, let's try an example. Let's say you're thinking of going back to school to get an advanced degree. Your friend wants to go back to school too, but they don't want to write their essays. You begin to pull ahead of them, so your friend tries to bring you down. They convince you to slack off on your work. They try to distract you from writing your essays because your success feels like their failure. Saboteurs will do anything and everything to keep you down. So kick these people out of your life. If you let them stay too long, you might just pay the price. <laughs> okay, thoughts. Interesting. Uh, what number is that? Is that number six? That's number six. Yeah, we have one more. Okay. So, hmm. The saboteurs and also the... Backstabbers? Backstabbers and the... Uh, Here, I'll, gaslighters. I'll, I'll have, I wrote them down because yeah. have notes. <laughs> the projectors, <laughs> the gaslighters, the, gaslighter, the backstabbers, the bad listeners, the peacock, and now the saboteurs. Yeah. So this saboteur is just a different, uh, you, seems to be the same character using the, a different tool, same character as the backstabber and the gaslighter, right? So I, I think that the gaslighter and the backstabbers are actually tools of a saboteur. Hmm. <laughs> well, I guess there you go. Yeah. So it's like, uh, the, the interesting thing about the saboteur, though, is that um, they... I think that this one is because they said, oh, this guy, you know, the narrator said something which is like, oh, they convince you to not study and this and that. In other, in other words, you know, like they actively try to um, sabotage, sabotage you. Mm -hmm. And then I immediately try to go to that. I want to investigate, okay, conscious versus unconscious. Is it a sliding scale? A saboteur is necessarily more conscious of what they're doing? Or what? Because I'm kind of skeptical both ways. What do you think about the level of consciousness in, in terms of this kind of sabotage thing? I do think that a saboteur is, and as well as a gaslighter and backstabber, um, I do think that they're definitely conscious of what they're doing. Um, I think that they get some type of thrill out of it. And um, they use others as competition they they see others as competition in a game that somebody else isn't playing with them. Well, you know, maybe. meaning that if somebody is, um, you know, like you may say, okay, I just want to have like a nice wife or something like that. And this person is out like, oh, I, I, I 
want to have a pretty wife and I can't let white Ike have a prettier wife than me. So I'm going to convince him to, to leave her or do something, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. And that's something that's def definitely deliberate. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, all in all, this, all these characteristics, you know, I haven't said all the different things that we said about them and ways in which we can watch them in ourselves and ways in which we can kind of counter certain things, ways we can, we can be better listeners, so on and so forth. But one thing that they all relate to is the topic, which is the topic about success and that people whom you want to partner with, mm -hmm. right? That's kind of one level of kind of uh, how people come into your life in terms of success. They either partnering with you or they're giving you opportunities uh, or they're showing you some opportunities. You're saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to go buy this little spot in Arizona. These are the number of units. Do you have an extra whatever, 20 grand to throw in on it for the whatever? Mm -hmm. Then we'll get the loan. These are the kinds of people, right, that are key to one's success, generally speaking, right? And you're not going to find in any, in other words, the typical backstabber, saboteur, insecurity driven type behaviors things that people do excessively you know when they when we excessively do these things because we're all prone to them excessively do these things about tearing people down you know not being able to look inside ourselves and seeing that you know it's really about us and then growing from there is that these people are of no value really to you or to most people to be honest right? sure. and that to be avoided like the plague in other words we're social animals. Everything that you want, you're going to get from somebody else in terms of skills, product services, many things in terms of human interactions can be analogized as being kind of marketplace-like, mm -hmm. right? So success, therefore, is very much in that marketplace interactions space, right? So that's why when people say, oh, watch out for these kinds of people for success. It's not really just about, oh, they'll drain your time. It's that too. They will drain your time and you won't be able to actually do certain things. But more so, it's because of the opportunity cost of the right kinds of people, right, that you're missing out on. And by the way, won't have anything to do with you if you're busy spending a lot of time with these kinds of people, right? So it's a double whammy. It's a waste of time, number one. And then number two, they don't really bring anything to the table, you know? And you need people to either teach, inspire, or collaborate with you. Right. And you kind of need all these kind of going and you maybe you will find you can extract these particular values out of different people in different times. But fundamentally, people need to be able to inspire you. And that's none of these characteristics uh, or they're teaching you or they're collaborating with you and giving you opportunities. And that's a totally different kind of person than what's being described here. So um, and I agree. A saboteur is somebody and in each of these, a saboteur, the gaslighter, a projector, um, or excuse me, the gaslighter and the um, backstabber, each of these types of people um, are people that sneak into your circle. They can only affect your life if they're in your circle and there's some initial trust. Um, how would you say, what would be some of the signs that a person should look for if a saboteur is sneaking into to their circle? Hmm. I would say that if you simply look at the symptoms that were described or some of the main, the main tales are really about a certain kind of a separation that they want to do with you. Okay. Now it has to, all these things have to be looked in combination. Okay. Because 
we all use these different skills for to, to different ends or d- act in these different ways. But so they're trying to separate you somehow from the group or you're, they're trying to increase their level of influence on you in a way which you have to judge is um, too fast. Now I say you have to judge it because you have the background or what is fast or too slow or whatever, or what's appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to make that judgment, but they're making that move to be overly influential too soon. Number two is they do the love bombing, right? In other words, people who are overly sweet to you, overly complimentary and blah, 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 and just give, you need to watch out for those because again, it's gotta be in combination, okay? They're kind of trying to pull you to be more influential and they just, oh, you're the best thing in the world. Um, the, the third thing is just um, a simple kind of, um, it's almost like having a good gauge for what is the appropriate, what are appropriate levels, what, what are the different personality types, in other, in other words. You, you kind of mm-hmm. have to have that, where you're like, when because what I'm kind of I'm trying to not explain it in terms of like oh just your spy your spidey senses are tingling or something but basically what's really going on is this person is very far far outside any particular working model of the different types of people whom should be interacting with me in this space that I should be taking credibly um, something off about them in that particular regard they don't fit and then they're doing this you know overly complimentary backslabby love bombing stuff while trying to create a certain kind of separation between you and the rest of the crew, the group or whatever it may be, trying to be overly, or should we say, unduly influential in that regard, so. Okay. Um, Melody says, uh, lots of saboteurs on YouTube. Um, absolutely, absolutely, particularly in this sector. And I can understand why, given the setting. You know, we're not necessarily competitors. Um, Ike and I are not um, necessarily competitors, neither myself or Fantastic or MOT or, or Bernard or anything like that. We're not, we're not competitors. However, a person with this type of thinking sees everyone as a competitor. So, you know, they will look to sabotage. You know, they will, yeah, they will look to do these things that we talked about. So, and, and, Partly because, you know, as they mentioned before, you have the, um, what was it? Hold on, let me look at my list. Uh, Not bad listener, Uh, Peacock. So you have the Peacock, which means that their ego is on the line. You have that aspect of it. Uh, Their self-worth is based on um, how others view them. So you have that motivator um, that would, you know, bring out the other characteristics or bring out their inner uh, backstabber or inner saboteur, things like that, because they want to increase that as much as possible for the sake of their own um, self-view and sense of self-worth. So you have that aspect of it. And then you have, there's a financial motivator. And, you know, like, mm-hmm. like, um, like I was saying earlier, certain industries attract certain type of behaviors, like politics and things like that. It brings out a competitive instinct. And yeah, I do think that this is one of them, especially if the person is uh, full-time or if this is their primary or large portion of their their income. Yeah, it's, it's um, I could see why you're seeing this, especially as a new YouTuber Melody, that this would be, that this would be something. Cause I noticed it here in a much higher concentration too. 
Um, <laughs> you know, fortunately, this isn't something I'm competing for. Well, everybody, everyone knows what I went through last year at this time. And, you know, that, you know, that's dealing with all these personality traits at once. Um, I was actually kind of shocked mm. when it happened, but, you know, and if you don't know, Ike, I'll tell you after the show, but mm. um, what happened to me. So, um, but yeah. All right. But thanks a lot, Melody. All right. Let's do number seven. Number seven, the steamroller. This is a personality type you want to avoid completely. Steamrollers run over everyone in their path. They don't care about your needs or preferences. They don't think about inconveniencing you or wasting your time. The simple truth is they don't value anyone's goals, time, or money nearly as much as their own. Let's say you've been waiting months to go to a concert. You've been talking about it nonstop. You can't wait to go, but on the night of your concert, your steamroller friend demands a small favor. You tell them you're busy, that they don't care, they don't respect your space. Instead, they expect you to bend to their will because your needs come second to theirs. And here's the worst part. Friends give in to the steamroller's outrageous demands. They don't know how to fight back, or maybe they've just stopped trying. Either way, steamrollers learn that they can charge their way through life. Don't be one of the poor people in their path. Leave these people behind because no one should take your needs for granted. Hey, thank you for watching. Okay, so the steamroller. Thoughts? Yeah, that is a that is a very interesting one because you need to, and this is like a find, finding a unicorn, but you know, they actually do exist, unlike unicorns. But mm -hmm. you a competent and driven steamroller pointed in a particular direction sometimes is the kind of person that you should choose as the mentor, be on the inspire side of things. Because, you know, so far I've been kind of saying, okay, you can learn from people, you can collaborate with people, um, they can find opportunities where you so on and so forth, they could be your customers. Um, but also there's the people whom have had a track record. In other words, I'm, I think steamroller is kind of obvious. Okay. People st streamrolling over you, but I'm talking about the steamroller characteristic in somebody. Okay. That's competent and driven. I don't know. Elon Musk and all the other, maybe other baby Elon Musk's out there. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause all these people are steamrollers. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, you may hate Gary Vaynerchuk or whatever or not, but Gary V same kind of thing, Steve Jobs, blah, blah, blah. All, in other words, success leaves clues, as they say. So in other words, in your life, number one, and also to put on the inspiration side of things, maybe you don't want to be around them, is what I'm saying. <laughs> right. But you want them to be like, okay, this guy, okay, he's like 10 years and 50 levels above where I'm trying to be, you know, and I specifically chose that because, you know, in 10 years, he went 50 levels, so he's, you know, I got to watch out. And, uh, or, you know, he's, he's good at what he does, or maybe an older person, or maybe there are different parameters along which you may want to have kind of like mentors and so on and so forth. But these are also useful, useful people to have. And the steamroller type teaches you a lot because a lot of in life needs to be steam steamrolled through, whether it's before good or for evil. Right. So it's just because you're doing good things doesn't mean you're not going to need to steamroll your way through it. Right. So. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting part that just came up. It's like, oh, the, the so, but the the whole unicorn aspect that I mentioned was to be able to find that one, because that steamrolling characteristic, or in its un, 
developed immature forms is just immaturity. Like it can be seen that way. Like it's an immature, pouty little child, right? That always wants their way, wants to steamroll. But then when it is well-formed again, so it's a competent driven person going towards a cause and then they can do that steamrolling thing, then they're a, they're a powerhouse and it is necessary for your success. Mm -hmm. You're gonna find, need to find this extra gear which is not very palatable in terms of social pleasantries, right? Uh, people tend not to like that gear and people so a lot, but it is absolutely necessary in order to be successful in anything. Okay, okay. Um, I agree. I, From what I gather, um, you're saying that it's better to be a steamroller than it is to be associated with one. Or one should actually to be a steamroller than um, <laughs> as opposed to being associated with one. Like it's better to be Trump than to be Trump's friend. Um, but perhaps, perhaps. So there's the other, the, in other words, yes, I would say yes to that. Okay. Okay. But also the steamroller characteristic is one of those things that's going to be, because I'm tying it to the success thing, right? Because if you remove a goal, Right. In this case, which is success writ large, generally, generally speaking, success. Right. Mm -hmm. If you remove the goal, then you can just look at the steamroller thing in a different from a different light. But when you have this particular goal where the goal is actually success and you're like, oh, okay, wait, 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 wait. There's something very particular about steamrolling and success, which mm -hmm. is that it is absolutely necessary. Right. However, the the wrapping of this particular steamroller that they described in this video in other mm -hmm. words, it's like when we started out, we're saying it's not about one particular attribute, okay? Or in other words, it's about a, a multitude of things. They're a steamroller and they're kind of don't care about what you think, okay? Even that so far may not be completely objectively bad, but it's about context with these with these particular kinds of uh, attributes, especially ones like steamroller. And that's because the context will completely change everything between some asshole in the local lumber yard versus Elon Musk, but they're both steamrollers, right? And um, it reminds me of this thing was, you know, you someone pushing women towards buses or someone pushing women, old women away from buses. Mm -hmm. You know, they're similar in the sense that they're pushing old ladies around, right? But they're very different. One is pushing old ladies into buses, one is pushing old ladies away. So steamrollers, uh, steamrolling is necessary for success, right? But then when you combine it with all kinds of crap around it, eh, then you're generally a crappy person. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. If um if steamrolling is used as a um means to do the other things, uh, what was it? What was the last one? Uh saboteur. So if it's used as a means to sabotage someone, um and well backstab um, them. Feel, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You feel that um sabotaging someone would expedite your growth, then yeah. Uh, steamrolling is a bad thing. Now, keep in mind, people, that um, Ike is coming from a business perspective, and that's 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 what we want. You know, that's the title of the show. Um, um, and this was given as far as interpersonal relationships, so can, two completely different things. You know, uh, the steamroller seems to be something that's more accepted in business because you're working together for a common goal, um, where you know that's not the case in your interpersonal relationships. So, you know, that, that one may, may, there, there probably should be an asterisk on that one. 
Yeah, that, that's very interesting. And then when it comes to interpersonal relationships of a particular kind, let's say man and woman, mm -hmm. that becomes even a more dangerous dance. What I, what I mean by dangerous is there's certain skills, like, you know, maybe there's something like you dance with a sword. It's like sword throwing dance, right? And it's kind of dangerous. So you use sticks to do it, but you never actually try it with real swords. So mm -hmm. knowing how to be a steamroller in a relationship is what I'm talking about in the sense that that's real uh, knife and sword juggling, right? Mm -hmm. You got to really know what you're doing. But even in there, because it's still human interaction, especially between a man and a woman, there is a nice little way of being a steamroller <laughs> right. um, that is actually appreciated and then also healthy for the relationship in a whole. But it's more surgical, scalpel-like, or as I said, dangerous in terms of like looking at it like knife juggling, right? Yeah, yeah, true, true. Okay, so it's 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 fun when they do it to other people, but when. <laughs> When they do it to you, you know, then it's it's not as fun. Like you may yeah. want your wife to say something like, um, listen, I don't care who's um, I don't care about the other girl's birthday. Um, it's my girl's birthday and I want the purple balloons. F them kids, you know, or, you know, I want this particular clown or entertainer to come to my kid's birthday party. I don't care about the other kids. That that's the type you want on your side, but you don't really want against you. I get what you're saying. Yeah, 100%. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, so on that, um, I want to talk to you um, about, and this is just for like broader society and how things get stuck into place. Um, so, there's an there was an experiment called the five monkey experiment. Mm -hmm. And basically what happened was five rhesus monkeys were placed into a cage. Mm -hmm. And at the top of the cage was a ladder. And in the center of the cage was, or excuse me, at the top of the cage was bananas. And in the center of the cage was a ladder that led up to the bananas. Now, what the humans did was um, they rigged it so each time a monkey was to attempt to climb to the top to get the bananas, um, all of the monkeys, all five of them, would be sprayed with water. So one of them tried to climb to the top, and of course it was sprayed. All of them were sprayed. And then another attempted to climb to the top, and again, all, four, all five were sprayed. And then when the third attempted to climb to the top, the other four monkeys beat them up. So um, very important. And then um, after that, they turned off the water machine and they took out one of the monkeys and replaced it with a new monkey, one that has never been sprayed with water. <laughs> and then when that monkey um, attempted to climb to the top, the other four monkeys um, attacked them because you know they mm -hmm. assumed that the device was on and they didn't want to be sprayed. Mm -hmm. And then one of the original monkeys was removed. <laughs> and then when that and, and replaced with a fresh one. When the fresh monkey attempted to climb to the top of the ladder, not only did the um, the three monkeys that were sprayed attack him, the mm -hmm. fourth monkey 
who was never sprayed attacked. Now it's very interesting because he doesn't really understand why he's just kind of going along with this group thing. Mm -hmm. So they continued the process of exchanging the monkeys until um, there were no monkeys in there that was sprayed. Mm -hmm. And yet none would still climb up to get the bananas because um, a system was in place, um, a psychological system. Keep in mind that the 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 machine has been off. So a psychological has been a psychological system has been placed into the monkeys to where um, they discourage each other from climbing to the top of the ladder to receive the bananas. So. So one thing that this brings to mind is. Um, besides some of the more inferential things, it's more of a. Um, Mimicry, right? Mm -hmm. Now, mimicry is something that we do even better than monkeys, right? We are the top, in other words, aping means, you know, to copy. And uh, we are top ape around here. Sure. So we, copy, yeah. <laughs> we, we copy very well. Um, we mimic everything. We also, and then this is quite imp important, um, is that we mimic desire. So what? So I'm going to stay on this mimic thing a, a little bit because there's the other aspect too, which is about, you know, the original feelers of whatever kind of trauma, right, that caused some kind of tradition to go into exist, into place, some fear-based tradition, if you will, um, that this thing can continue to just perpetuate itself over time without any real a person knowing why. Like, mm -hmm. why do we tell people not to go over there? Why do we hate this particular tribe, right? Like, mm -hmm. I don't even remember why we were fighting these people, that kind of a thing, right? But on the mimicry end of things, we need to understand that we mimic everything, including mimicking desire. And the mimicking desire part is part where it gets most dangerous because you and me, okay? Or just go to the, that child that doesn't like the red ball on the floor, okay? Playing with other toys doesn't want that red ball until another child comes in and picks up that red ball and looks at that red ball like the most interesting thing ever. All of a sudden, that first child is not going to be interested in the red ball, right? Mm -hmm. This is mimicry at a, at, a, at a basic level in terms of mimicking desires. And it might be even argued that desire is nothing but mimicked. Now, we're not talking about animal drive, such as, you know, you feeling hungry. There is an independent you feeling hungry organism or, or machinery going on, right? You don't copy, you know, even though you can copy other people that are, but anyway, that's a different thing. But you independently have a, I feel hungry machine going on. But a lot of the things that you desire that are outside of that, you know, I want to breathe, I want to drink water, I want to eat. Like, oh, I want that red ball, or I think I want the Ferrari, or I want this particular type of woman. It's typically because you're seeing that particular desire reflected around you. This is what the people around here are supposed to like, right? Mm -hmm. So... I'm going to go ahead and start liking it. So this mimicry leads to everybody wanting what everyone else wants. Okay. This is a powder keg. This happens all the time with human in human beings. And then it needs to be some kind of an outlet. Okay. Um, and the outlet usually happens with people finding a scapegoat. And then we focus our, all our rage now copying each other's rage mm -hmm. into some kind of scapegoat as to the reason why, there's scarcity and so on and so forth. But it's another kind of a way of looking at why economic growth is necessary. Because if you now want a red ball too, 
well, we need to start making more red balls if everybody's going to start wanting red balls, right? That kind of a thing. Otherwise, we're going to be at each other's throats. So there is a direct line between this mimicry to violence, as also it is shown in this case, but it's more done in a different way, right? But mimicry tends to lead to violence, and it is something that we need to watch out for in ourselves. Okay. Okay. Um, interesting. And I see where you're going with this. Like, I'm pretty sure um, Crips and Bloods and, you know, maybe even like, you know, other gangs um, that exist um, don't even know why they're at each other's throats because, you know, it's it's been <laughs> happening for over a generation, meaning that, you know, the new younger uh, members of the gangs um, are like the fresh monkeys. They, like, they don't know why. They just, you know, but we do know that this, you know, pseudo war has been going on for quite some time. And, you know, we're going to continue to fight it because that's just the way things are are done in Southern California. So, um, yeah, it's um, it's interesting. So what about the aspect of um, the bananas? Like none of them will ever get ahead as a result of it, because you mentioned you mentioned earlier the mindset of, you know, the white man is holding me back. They they won't, you know, uh, they're, they're holding back my Wi-Fi or something like that. And yeah, uh, shout out to O'Shea. So um, now there may have been a time that that was true, but I think that right now, um, if we were to use the experiment as an analogy, I think that right now we're at the point where the, the machine is off. The water machine is off and we, we are behaving as if it's on and we don't know why. You know, if one person attempts to to climb the ladder of success, the others will hold them back, and you know, and yeah, they, they and probably don't even know why. That's what that's what I'm getting at, as far as yeah, they don't know why. And also, this particular set of circumstances that you described, okay, being there in that place leads to blame mechanics being easily sparked. In other words, people are looking for there's some there's something bad, right? There's there's some fear that we have, even though we don't know the cause. Mm -hmm. Bananas are up there that we cannot get, okay? Something bad is going on. We don't even really know the cause. But we definitely, in this set of circumstances, are prone to scapegoat people, right? So even somebody that starts thinking, oh, well, I think we can cut down the ladder or we can do this, some, thinking outside the box, if you will. Thinking again, exercising critical thinking in real time in order to solve a problem as opposed to just being bound by certain external conditions. Mm -hmm. Okay. You can be bound by internal conditions, but then external conditions is like, yeah, you know, I think we can move this to that, the other. People can scapegoat that person and say, you know what? You're probably the reason why it's people like you that, you know, and these things are not rational, right? It mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense. It's like, okay, well, People are generally dissatisfied. There is, um, th there's a, the middle class is kind of shrinking or shall we say the, the success of the past generation is not necessarily reflected in the future generation. The first time when people can kind of, in America, for example, or can expect to do less well than their parents, right? Mm -hmm. So these things are going on and then there's a kind of a boy slash man crisis. And then, okay, Jordan Peterson comes out and he starts just saying, oh, well, you know, uh, you know, you need to take your cross and carry it up that hill or whatever. And, uh, you know, it's really about rescuing the, your father from the belly of the beast. It's really, anyways, he's doing his whole thing, really just trying to help. But then people just attack him like, oh, it's you. You're the problem. And it's just like when you see those kinds of things that don't really kind of make sense 
these are the dynamics typically at play. Um, people traumatized by reasons and reasons they don't know why they're traumatized. No original monkey that was sprayed is in the cage anymore. Um, this leads to the ability, to, because we like to copy everything and we copy a lot of negative too, we copy that ganging up on people. And we have that tendency to gang up on people. That's why, and here's a theory, here's you know something. You, this is a particular theory of human sacrifice that I'm kind of giving you here. Human okay. sacrifice is something that we see all through societies, right? It's always existed, right? In all, all levels of societies. Either we're sacrificing humans, but then later on we change it to, oh, don't, you know, sacrifice the the animals, <laughs> you know, or whatever. But that human sacrifice thing, that that uh, come um, that coming together to, to commit violence on somebody is a great way to bring people together, right? And keep them together and exorcise that particular demon that they're trying to, that, you know, the, the scapegoat finding demon, if you will, that is part of the dynamics that we described. This dynamics of mimicry. We mimic good things, mimic bad things. Then maybe we start saw wanting what each other wants. Okay. And then an outlet for that tends to be to start mimicking our hate for this one particular person or group or whatever. So it's kind of crazy in, in, in that whole mimicry thing. It goes deeper and deeper up to the point whereby we see human sacrifice which is a systematic way of ganging up on somebody to kind of get something out of our system. And it binds us together. It's almost like, you know what you, you know, me game changer and the rest of them. Yep. We killed them in the warehouse, 1999. You, we all know, we remember, <laughs> you know, that's kind of, that kind of thing will keep people together. Right. <laughs> you know, it's this kind of unique special experience. So this is something that we do as human beings. We don't, we need to more understand our ape, dangerous crazy monkey uh aspects because we tend to think that we're kind of fundamentally you know to be provocative good right but rather it's like no you you're you're you come from chimpanzees those things that rip each other's you rip monkeys apart while they're alive and when another troop of chimpanzees come through they they like to torture you in other words like they 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 bite your balls off and you know <laughs> you know bite off one finger at a time and they're super strong but these are your your cousins and you found even a way to dominate the whole freaking damn planet so stop thinking that you're fundamentally good or you don't have some kind of things in this machinery that lead you if you're blind to them to very dark places okay so um if you combine the fundamental good thing with the uh, uh memory um, have trouble with that word, but when you combine the two, um, I guess you could. One can conclude that we might just be good because we're influenced by good people, um, which means that you know social evolution uh, definitely outpaced our biological evolution, and we're really just um, working under society's norms um, that's keeping us from behaving in a more primitive fashion. Not really, you know, not really our own our own instincts. That's um. That's a that's an interesting way to put it. That, that, um, that's, a, that's a very good one because the idea and many religions get it. And plus also, look, Star Wars gets it. Or in other words, we get Star Wars because of this reason. In other words, we need characters mm -hmm. to copy. We need role models to copy. Otherwise, I think you're, you're onto something here. Right. And then religions know that they give you something to copy. And mm -hmm. the idea is to copy something that is outside the Joneses. Because keeping up with the Joneses usually in, ends up in violence. So let's give you something transcendental or transcendent to copy. Um, 
And that's what all these mythologies are about. At least when you look through a lens, because these things you're looking backwards. It's like we, we look backwards in human history and we find these things. Mythologies everywhere, these kind of mm -hmm. stories, kind of behaviors. And then we tell a plausible story about it, right? So when I say that's what mythology is for, it's not because there's any particular one creative mythology sat down and thought this through, but we're just moved by copying of models. So that being the case, that would, it's kind of scary to think about the amount of control modern society has um, mm. to, to a species who, whose biological imperative is to copy others, because it really means that um, if, if we are just uh, followers of the strongest influence, the media has an extraordinarily strong influence and has for quite some time. So this is, uh, this is why people like William Randolph Hearst or why Rupert Mur Murdoch and so on and so forth. There's some people who very quite saliently see that point and go after it and try to get the reins of power in, in media, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, you're, you're exactly. Correct. So a lot of the behaviors um, when, and this is something that's, um, that I think should be abolished, um, yeah. that black people have um, isn't necessarily our behavior. It's a behavior that was presented to us and we're just copying it. Um, like a behavior that was been, that was presented through us through various forms of media over the 150 years of emancipation, like, um, you know, the the weight gain, the violence, the hypersexualization, the um, poor academic performance, like, you know, it's, it does seem as it because notice that if you step outside of these things, hmm. um, they no longer call you black. Um, yes. Yeah. Oh, you know, you're acting, you're, you're, you're acting white. Yes, you're, you're acting white. So the whole image thing, look, it's a, and that's when it starts getting out of hand. And what I mean by that is the scope of the cover of what needs to be done when viewed from this lens of, okay, this is the scope of the problem. It's in people's minds. It's through media. It's a story in their head. Just like the story of me being Ike or you being game changer is in your head. Mm -hmm. When Once it's implanted in there, it's a tough thing to deal with. Right? So when you look at the scope of that kind of, um, endeavor you begin to immediately kind of say well how much of just bloviating and talking am i doing versus how much is actually actionable but at the danger of just kind of doing that bloviating and talking basically the image work all that magic work needs to be done right mm -hmm. i call it magic because it's all you call you could call it media or whatever right mm -hmm. but especially when you're trying to do it when you're trying to reverse it you need to understand how to how it works there's some creativity to it, but there's also some science to it in terms of how to put a story in people's head, flip the story, put a positive story. And by positive, I mean something that's not just reacting against, something that's not reactionary, something that's not like, oh, they put all these things in our head. Rather, it's something that says, these are the things we want to put in our head, right? Like, so these, this is the image of myself as a black man, for example, or as a black woman or whatever it may be. Like having that positive image, and by positive again, I mean you actively putting it there as opposed to reacting to where how you think you're being not properly imaged, if you will. Mm -hmm. So you put in something and say, this is my image, positive, enacted, active, not reactive, 
forget what everyone else is saying. This is the original. This is the authentic. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think that doing that kind of work, which is in the world of art and then also in the world of um, um, media, generally speaking, is needed and also it can be tied to economic output. In other words, it, 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 so let's say you wanted to do this for the, for the West African image, mm -hmm. which I think kind of helps too for, because quote unquote Eidos is a different, it's a different experience, right? Mm -hmm. But cannot be disconnected completely from, let's say the West African aspect, right? But so if let's say we're in this continuum and then I wanted to say, you know, West African, how do you do something about certain kind of image, make money with it, blah, blah, blah. So what is West African food, for example? You can go out, right? You, you're in the Bay. So I'm sure you can go, you can be like, oh, we're having South Indian tonight, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. somewhere. So what is, oh, you're having Chinese or you haven't have Italian. Okay, what is having Nigerian? What's having West African? In other words, there is a gap here, okay, for in the market. We know that it can be reproduced. For example, people in Afrobeats has taken over, over Atlanta and in, in London and that kind of stuff, which is from Africa. In other words, we import hip hop. We love hip hop, right? You take can take Afro beats and so on and so forth. And there's money that gets made, right? So mm -hmm. even if in this particular food thing, like how do you bring in this kind of food thing? There's an image that also is there to it to play in the whole kind of story magic way, but also money is made. There's an image in terms of like clothing. Money can be made. Image in terms of like, yeah, the, the books and the magazines and the actual image of this particular person who is neither a, a simp cuck, you know, as they tend to show some of them, or some kind of thug. So it's, it's either it's Thugnificent, or I forget who that other guy. Who's the other guy? Gangs Delicious. It's Thugnificent and Gangs Delicious versus, oh, oh, I got you. If you want to do that, that kind of. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're talking about Boondocks, right? Like, like Gangs Delicious versus Thugnificent. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is that. that Yeah. Because Gangs Delicious is, yeah, he's, he's a little sweet, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, also, there is this kind of just showing of a lame. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of also kind of, that is kind of not cool because these images are not supposed to be images of lames, right? In other words. Well, um, I mean, they, they, they don't, um, they don't put a positive image to, you know, the lame title. Like, um, so all of the positive images seem to go, at least in, you know, the Eidos community, um, seems to go to uh, self-destructive brothers. And part of it is because it's simply violence is just entertaining. And another part of it, and I think it's more nefarious, is that um, more sensible men have sensible spending habits, meaning that they're 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 harder to sell to. Hmm. So, you know, that image probably should be taken down because, you know, you're not going to sell um, superfluous things to um, a person that really doesn't care about such things. Like no matter However, how there is a there is a high end, high spend, um, prestige slash also status spending of certain kinds, perhaps related to what I, I mentioned earlier in terms of the aesthetic end, right? If you're gonna serve that lamb right and you're gonna buy that right wine, you're gonna have the right cutlery, the right table, and perhaps the right dining room for it, right? Mm -hmm. So there is that end, and that end does not want to see some his whole thing represented by. Some, right? Some lame. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, if you also look at it in terms of you take it back to the realm of mythology, right? Your yeah. gods, the people you're trying to look up to, 
you don't pick these like, oh, I'm going to make him. Uh, it's like, no, they're larger than life. Okay. Brad Pitt's head on the screen in the movie and he's a hero. It's, it's like three stories tall, right? That kind of a thing, right? Mm -hmm. So we need to be positively, shall we say, influenced and inspired by larger than life and positive figures. And it also goes to that other thing about not copying the Joneses per se, but copying something a little more transcendent. And that's why I also went to the gods too and such. In other words, that realism in art, like, oh, well, I'm just, I just painted somebody and they happen to have a cold sore, this beautiful woman. Imagine I painted a beautiful woman in the evening gown mm -hmm. and then I put a cold sore, a horrible cold sore in the corner of her lip. It's like, well, why did you put the cold sore there? It's like, well, it's, re it's reality. You know, people could have cold sores, but it's like, nah. it's like, no, remove the cold sore. In reality, I can see cold sores, but in, in, in the painting here, you're doing so. You're, 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 it's an, it's a particular action in order to create a particular reaction out of somebody. And in this case, I'm saying go for higher, go for cleaner, go for posher, go for more masculine in terms of the presentation of this positive image that one is trying to put out there. Because again, it's absolutely necessary. No community lives without a myth without a story, without a set of, let's say, rituals and traditional regalia that they may have, for example. This is how our people are. These are the things that our people do, that kind of a thing. You know, so it is absolutely necessary. And also there's money to be made in it, whether it be in clothes, whether it be in um, transcontinental dating services, who knows, right? Or And so on and so on and so forth, right? Plus the food thing that I mentioned earlier. Well, no, I, I get that. I mean, you know, um, when I was tutoring math, um, you know, um, an Asian kid did put Asian math tutor, you know, on his, um, you know, on a cork board and that would give him an advantage, um, in gaining clients over me. What can I do? Put black ones. So yeah, having a, having a, um, a positive ethnic reputation, um, you know, definitely helps and it, it hasn't helped us for many generations, but, um, I can definitely see the value in that. Now, um, I want to give an example of how severe the programming could be and how Ooh. severe um, how severe once somebody attached their identity to something can be um, in an attempt to because my, my follow up question is going to be, how does one get out of this? Like if a person has this particular self-perception, it seems pretty strong in them to where they can't really. OK, I'll give the example first. So we're all familiar with the movie Forrest Gump, and there was a character on there named uh, Lieutenant Dane. Now, he is a relative, or all of his ancestors, uh, coincidentally, has died in each and every single war that America has fought. Now, with this understanding, he took it to mean that, um, hey, I am destined to do this. This is who I am. I am a, I'm going to grow up and, you know, the stories has been told to him since he was young. I'm going to grow up. I'm going to join the military. I'm going to become an officer and I'm going to fight. And if there's a war available, I'm going to die in that war. Um, he's, he's come to this real uh, rationalization, even though, you know, there isn't anything mythical about it. It's just, it's just a, you know, unlikely coincidence, but a coincidence nonetheless, you know, however, it, he embedded this into his identity to where when he survived a war and came back injured, meaning he couldn't fight another, it's like, wait a minute, this wasn't supposed to happen. 
and he grabbed the guy that saved his life. And he's like, I am Lieutenant Dang. So his identity was, I am destined to die in this war. Like that's the identity that his family's history has, has inflicted on him. That's how strong it is. Like samurai, you know, this is my identity and I will die for that identity. There were um, Celtic priests, you know, who self-castrated, you know, um, because that's their identity in relationship to their religion and things like that. So it is a very strong thing um, once outsiders um, put an identity into you and mm -hmm. knowing that that's the depths that people who had this identity projected on them, you know, would go. How, how would you say um, one should counter that? Okay, so it, it should be immediately noticed, right? That uh, we just talked about the necessity of identity <laughs> and um, of an image, of an identity with a particular image attached, with a particular storyline attached, and perhaps even the tailoring of that particular identity, right? So then we see the flip side or how it could go wrong, identity, how identity can go wrong. Now we're getting down to the individual level of things. Because on the group level, you need to make sure that the identity slash reputation, all the forms of media, music, print, social media, and so on and so forth, is on point in whichever organization and or group of peoples right, that you're trying to represent. Right? Mm -hmm. So in the area, though, of how not to let your identity manipulate you, I think I'll go back and revert to something that I said earlier, which is that your identity, let's say, you know, GC, that's your name. Your name is GC. You were born in a particular year to a particular family who has a story already going on. Mm -hmm. This is the story of this particular family. We live over here in this particular part of the Bay. This is our socioeconomic status and so on and so forth. This is what your grandfather did during the war. Right. That story is line is a storyline that you you're not part of as well. As you grow up, this autobiographical data that you take on, you fill up this identity structure, which is necessary. It's part of the structure of our minds. It's how we operate. Right. We fill it up with autobiographical data as well, but it's very self-selective. Right. We don't put in everything in there. We trying to paint a certain image of ourselves. Now, the point is you need to know the parts of that image. OK that are, again, superfluous, that are not necessary, in other words, so that you don't get attacked there, right? So, mm -hmm. so that it cannot control you as much, so that you can simply say, okay, well, I don't need to be Sergeant Ding anymore. That was just a part of my uh, valor slash, you know, what would be the principle associated with that, right? So it's valor, it's a, a willingness to, to do the dangerous and the impossible, right? Those mm -hmm. are the underlying things. So it's like, okay, whether- Patriotism, yeah. Patriotism, so on and so forth. It's like, okay, I'm going to take away the Sergeant Dang slot, and then I'm going to replace it with something else. I don't know. I'm going to start Blackwater, uh, you know, become, you know what I mean by uh, that company. You may, you may call them mercenaries, I guess, right? Yeah. But basically yeah. becoming a private contractor in the military slash whatever other kind of military and patriotic things you have. In other words, always look below the fluff of whatever it is you're filled your identity bag with and try to find the necessary principles that underlie it. If you're a man of valor and you're doing warrior prince type hierarchy stuff, then it doesn't matter which particular, you know. Now, it, it's it's tough, okay, to make transitions out of those kinds of situations, right? When you're like, 
you're a police officer and you that was your identity and now you can't work anymore, so on and so forth. But that's why that mastery of subjective consciousness aspect is absolutely key because how can you be able to introspect this way without understanding how your particular identity manifests itself, right? Because you need to see how when your identity is insulted, for example, where do you feel it? Uh, is it a immediate kind of uh, like somebody ripped your chest out when they say something bad about your mom and your family and how whatever they were losers or something like that? How, what does that feel like? Watch that. Sit with it. Become comfortable with it. Become acclimated to it. And in that way, you can perform the surgery, which I talked about. Right. The surgery is there is a core to your identity. Make sure you understand what the core is. It's going to be some kind of superfluous things added about your particular age, your particular sex, your particular kind of job. You're here right now, your particular history, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm this man. I'm this kind of this. Okay. But in order to be able to surgically kind of remove one, let one particular aspect of your ego die and then kind of continue like a phoenix, then you need to be able to observe how in real time that ego aspect of the ego manifests themselves. Become comfortable with them. That mm -hmm. way you can be able to sidestep them. You can become the observer of them rather than being caught in them. Okay. Okay. Very good point. Very good point. Um, that's, that, that definitely takes a lot of discipline to do. Um, you know, we all struggle with it. A lot of us don't even know that we do, you know, um, that we are being programmed by outside forces that are very powerful. Um, and yeah, um, to get out of it is very difficult. But if you find yourself behaving as a trope, um, then that's obvious. That's definitely obvious. Um, there are a lot more subtle things that um, that we probably need to do, and that's why we have spaces like this and you know people like Ike to help us identify them so we can step out of it. Um, as far as the Nigerian restaurant thing goes, um, um, I only had Cameroonian food. Um, it's spicy, to say the least. Um, at least the way it was prepared for me. So, um, but yeah, you're right. That's all the West African I get. I mean, there's Ethiopian food, um, but yeah. <laughs> and that's, that is largely due to, I don't even want to say negative public perceptions of West Africa. I, I just think that, um, as far as America goes, they want to pretend like it doesn't exist. Yeah. And um, it's almost like uh, I look at it as an opportunity. In other words, for anything to be something has got to be done. Someone needs to be to do it. Right. Regardless. I don't know how Chinese stock market uh, um, um, restaurants became so ubiquitous all over the world. Right. But I also know that it's not because, you know, everybody just loves the Chinese everywhere. Right. No. <laughs> you know, it's like whether it be racism or all kinds of tribalism and blah, blah, blah. It affects all these other groups. But in other words, the fact that it's absent. You look at the landscape of the problem. Why is it absent? What are the chances of success? How can it be instantiated and allowed to grow? All these kinds of kind of, how do I bring this thing about? And then try to bring it about. Because uh, uh, it's not going to just happen of, of its own, right? Generally speaking. But mm -hmm. everything from celebrity chef type stuff to, you know, because you're just places you have to, in the media, you have to kind of slot it in certain places and then have like a, the restaurant kind of got in the right place as well. And then there's quality and so on and so forth. But restaurant is the hardest one to do because, you know, <laughs> the in each, each individual restaurant business 
is by definition not a very good business too much competition not enough profits and so on and so forth tend not to last right so mm -hmm. but um other aspect that could be brought in that you can then sneak the food into the because once the food pops and then you it's you can now say i'm having nigerian i'm having Cam cameroonian and just the way you would say i'm having indian then somebody's gonna be making that money i guess or uh the, the marketplace will be better off for it i guess yeah exactly and the people um you know who represent the culture will also be better off for it and hopefully one day you know my son will be able to say black math tutor and it means something it means something positive it's actually a selling point and and, and ladies you know don't think that you're absent this you know try to open up a massage parlor and then say black woman massage it is just not going to happen um however um asian massage and swedish massage seem to sell very well um no matter where you go. So yeah, um, creating a positive brand um, has its benefits for, you know, the the culture that created it. Um, however, it requires not just the change of media perception, um, individual public perception must be must be altered too. you know, like, um, and you know, this is this is particular to the woman, you can't really uh, tell society to ignore your bad apples when their bad apples are presenting themselves. You have to, you know, say, hey, you're making us look bad. Um, being overweight is making the collective look bad and it's making us hard to sell us, um, sell us as a culture of beautiful women, you know, um, and the same, same place with, um, with black men, you know, like, uh, behaving violence, violence and ignorance, um, and wearing your pants underneath your ass is um, not the image that we want. You can't really uh, do anything with that. And it's it's very destructive and disruptive. So, you know, you're making us look bad. Uh, we are not looked upon as something that can be respected amongst adults. Even though it's a culture that's very pleasing to young people, it's not something that adults really respect. And you're making life difficult for the rest of us. Yeah, the thing about... Um image is some people again have a difficulty disaggregating different aspects of one particular what they may consider one particular phenomena so there's this successful person right they look mm -hmm. this way they dress this way they talk a certain way right they carry themselves a certain way they have some protocol about them and so on and so forth what they tend to then think is that this person also oh maybe they're a square they're rule bound if you will mm -hmm. um and the square part, eh, that's just being childish. The rule-bound part, in other words, thinking that it's rule-bound, I'm going to entertain that thought for a second. And because there are certain kinds of creative people, let's say, and typically creative people always talk about squares and also, um, oh, I don't care about my image type stuff. I'm going to grow my dreads out or whatever it might be, right? Mm -hmm. So the thing about it is you need to understand it's not that big a deal, in other words. <laughs> In other words, the people who say they don't care about image tend to care about image more. Here's what I'm saying. It's like, if you don't care about image so much, then why don't you just do the conventional thing to get the conventional, to get the outcomes that you want? You know what I'm saying? True. Yeah. It's like, no, it's like, no, my dreads will never come off. And it's like, oh, you're the one that really cares about image. Right? It's like, no, if you, because, and the reason, I get the reason why is because there's put, there's all this typography going on. You've typecast this person. You've put a particular lameness on him now, right? And uh, in terms of that successful type with his protocol and his way of dressing and his mannerisms and everything, right? But in reality, that's not how people are, okay? 
that's not how people are. People are mm. more diverse than that. You can have, you know, lames in 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 t-shirts and not in suits, or you can have people that are creative and very um, vivacious in all kinds of ways being in a boardroom somewhere looking uptight with a tie in their neck and then someone else with all kinds of tattoos on their neck right it's boring as hell they never did a creative thing in their life you mm -hmm. know it's like they don't there's nothing really interesting about them you know so this idea that oh well you can't be multifaceted in this way or if I, if i wear this or if i carry that or if i study this then it means i've been limited it's like that is a very limiting dare i say approach to the to the world okay you can any successful person knows how to play on different levels and there's the level of general broadly accepted image you simply just okay cool this is what you check the boxes check as appropriately enough try to be as creative as possible in there but you have other things to worry about right you know what i mean it's mm -hmm. like oh you want me to cut my hair okay cut my hair because i got a thousand things to else to worry about about how i'm going to deliver on the on the project how i'm going to be able to justify the insurance bill that i just paid for my company this year um get work for my employees blah 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 I'm not, I'm not going to die on the heel of uh, the right haircut or the right, you know, attire. Yeah, exactly. And and that goes back into what I was saying about the whole Lieutenant Dane thing. Like, you know, the haircut, this, you know, this is like deeply embedded into a, a person's sense of who they are. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it does. Once again, it does affect the collective. I mean, you know, you can't you can't get around it. And there's an economic aspect to that as well. You know, I mean, the um, the Orientals um, in general, but the Chinese more specifically have been crafting their image for quite some time, you know, um, and injected into, you know, America and their perception of them, you know, mm -hmm. um, whether it's true or not, you know, I mean, anybody who watched MMA know that they're not necessarily the best martial artists. However, it's, it is a, you know, deeply uh, crafted image. You know, it's it's you you can't disassociate the two, you know, you like um, between an Asian man and, and martial arts. So it's it's one of those things. Um, our image is is not really for adults. It's not really producing much that we can use. You know, mm -hmm. um, if you are an attractive black woman and shout out to Chantel, who's who's an attractive black woman. And if you say if you wanted to throw a party and you know somebody says hey you know there's a party with about 50 black women there it's not going to have the same effect as you know there's a party with 50 colombians there or you know something like that and that's because the the collective reputation you, you know you're you're not going to get around that yeah the collective reputation is so it then comes down to because first of all you have to care about it you have to understand why you care about it in order to begin to form a problem statement because from the problem statement we'll be we'll see possible solutions right when you're able to define the problem you know <laughs> like well so basically why would, would you care you would care maybe maybe you can offer your way through the perception thing and maybe it doesn't affect you that much in your particular line because you have a reputation that's so singular that everybody in your industry doesn't judge you based on color of your skin or something like that. But I've once had to put this way that how about your son, right? You brought up your son earlier too, right? Mm -hmm. How about your son then? How will they react? Will they be 
it don't matter. I just alpha my way through it because you got to understand that that's a personality trait, right? Mm -hmm. Not everybody just alphas their way through stuff. Sure. And also enough of an introvert where social things doesn't matter to them. So that's why you should care. And then you're like, so therefore the time scale now is presented to you, which is like, okay, it's a, it's a generational thing. I want my, it's more like the people, some young people right now, plus my people whom are my son's age, my hypothetical son's age, um, also to have changed or have progressed in a certain direction with regards to how they judge people in terms of the content of their skin, I mean, color of their character versus content of the skin type stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's the timeline. One gen, at least one or a couple of gen, you're thinking, gen, you're thinking generational now. Okay. So, and I think that kind of helps orient one in terms of the kinds of solutions you should be thinking about, because if it's a generational thing, then it's different. The levers to pull are different. The approaches to take are different. But um, I think that if you care about it for these reasons, and if you're now seeing that it's a generational thing, then the next thing to do is to do anything that you can, right, in your own particular house, and then also out there in the world to propagate a, a, a positive counter image. Positive, again, meaning active and enacted and actually not just being reactive. So something that you put out there as opposed to you just saying, no, 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 to all these other things, right? Um, however, that opens up the whole realm of art, right? Um, which I think is very important. And that's why the crappy music and the crappy social media, so on and so forth, and all that kind of stuff is bad. But then what is the good replacement and how can it be marketed effectively to make the, just for you to see the outcomes in those two generations that you're shooting for? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I don't think that it would okay, here's here's the problem I see with that. I don't think that the guy, the people who perpetuate this negative image, um, I don't think that they don't know. I think that they think it's a good thing. Hmm. I think that they believe that the negative image, um, because I, I get what you're saying. You're saying that they don't know um that that they're perpetuating um, are the importance of cultural imagery. What I'm saying is they know and they think that this is a good cultural image to perpetuate. They mm -hmm. want to be seen as hyper-violent, hyper, violent, hyper um, and hypersexual, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They believe that it's a good thing. They believe that the gangster image is a good thing and we're going to roll with this. Um, mm. And- I can, I can, I can see that you, you I can see that as probably you can see it too. And what I mean is we get that, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's perpetuated that. And, you know, I, I don't think that they think that they're doing harm is what I'm saying. Yeah, so the not doing harm part, hmm. Because I think that it is enticing for sure. But, right. You know, Hood, <laughs> it reminds me of a video on YouTube um, where this, I think it was like eight-year-old or seven-year-old kid took his mom's truck, black kid, drove mm -hmm. all over the place, you know, caused the ruckus and whatever, do all kinds of stuff. And they were asking him, interviewing him. It's like meme on social media. It was like, from years ago, though. Mm -hmm. And like, why did you not go to school? And he's like, well, you know, I wanted to take the car, blah, 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 blah. Well, why did you want to take the car and do all that? And it was like, 
Well, because me and my friends wanted to do hood rat things. <laughs> oh, smoking with cigarettes. You're talking about smoking with cigarettes. Is that the is that yeah. the what is that exactly? That that was an episode of the Boondocks, but it was based on a real kid that did that. Yeah, exactly. So it's like wanted to do hood rat things. Yeah. Don't get it. Very appealing to do hood rat things and yeah. to kind of be seen as, you know, because what it is is appealing to that uh, rule breaking aspect, which for me, I, I can understand. So that's why I said, for example, people who look at uh, a certain kind of professional image as being rule bound think that are looking at that because they think being rule bound is a bad thing. And I agree. I don't like being rule bound. Mm -hmm. I think that it's very limiting and it shows a limited understanding of how rules come about. Right. It's like you're all human being as well. And you can you can um, you can make certain decisions. So being kind of. um rule bound or shall we say not being rule bound in this particular regard um and doing that tightrope walk i think is 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 absolutely key it's like you know what because i'm taking a i'm not just doing a tangent right now it's almost like i'm dropping hopping onto a, another track where it's like because this whole thing about game comes up because we're talking about swag and a certain kind of image and we're talking about why it's appealing right right so, and also game in terms of being influential, persuasive in terms of the communication. Mm -hmm. There is something about being cool, which is too cool for school, too cool for rules, right? Which is inherently appealing. Mm -hmm. So the idea is you take the negative, all other kinds of negative stuff, and you try to attach it to cool because you don't really quite know the essence of cool, Right. So you just see that, oh, it goes on around with these groups of people over here and they tend to look this way and they kind of like, but the essence of cool, cool really is balance and equanimity and a, a great level of kind of control. Again, that internalism, which I keep on talking about, right? You're most cool when you're literally cool and you're literally calm and it doesn't right. really matter what both internal and external disturbances and perturbations are. How you may be insulting me, and yeah, maybe my I'm getting hot in the back of my neck, and maybe uh, my heartbeat is going up, and I, I feel pretty angry with you right now. But cool is just being able to observe that, move past it, right? So, however, people don't understand the essence of cool, so they'll be like, because observing and moving past in it helps you, whether it is you, you're selling something, or you're asking her for her number, or you're trying to be the cool guy around or whatever, I'm not trying to be, but if, but that's going to result in you being that person. But what's the essence of it? The essence of it is really internal, but rather people will start talking about, well, what lines do I say when, how about when I, when it's noon in a gas station versus when it's midnight <laughs> in the parking lot of the club is, do I change my lines? It's like, you've missed the point entirely. Yeah. But the cool thing that, which is appealing really is about, not being rule bound, being kind of original in a certain sense, and really is it comes from within, it comes from a state of equanimity within. Okay, um, I definitely agree with that. Um, I, I think as and game dudes is trust me just a byproduct of um, a lot of problems that we have as a result of um, outsiders programming our our culture. Um, however, um, that's one we could talk about now definitely and. What I found with those guys is well, what I found in general about the programming of African-Americans in their culture is that 
it's focused on the young. Hmm. Um, meaning, okay, so for example, if you look at the Orientals, um, particularly the Chinese, once again, I mean, when I say Orientals, because 90% of them are Chinese, it's like a population of 2 billion, you know, I mean, it's always going to be particularly them. But um, their cultures tend to focus on the adult, the martial artists, the academics, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera, the ninja warriors or, you know, whatever, whatever they're portraying, even the cooks and the chefs, they, they tend to focus on the 30 plus crowd, whatever, whatever mm -hmm. it is. And it's not much out there on them. Um, however, unless, unless she's in a schoolgirl uniform, you know, or <laughs> she's big eyed on an anime, anime, it's pretty much going to be an adult. Um, just to be clear on that, mm -hmm. ours seem to either focus on the children, teenagers, or someone in their 20s. So, which, of course, if they're going to behave in an age appropriate, well, nothing is always. However, they're going to be, they're going to behave in an age appropriate thing. And that is going against the grain you know, rules are for, for losers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is fine at a certain age. And a lot of people attach their identity to this particular age group. And what winds up happening is like, okay, you know, you're an adult now. Not only should you be, you know, more focused on following rules, you should be making them and enforcing them. <laughs> and there isn't really a trope for Black Americans, particularly Black American men, for the adult Black American man, hmm. and so, um, I yeah. think that that's why we have like a lot of juvenile behavior, kind of like you know, like like chasing tail. Um, don't get me wrong, there, there's tail chase it, but um, to talk about it as a major part of your life is something that you do at a young age, like counting sure. the number, counting the amount of numbers you get, telephone numbers you get, you know, bragging on sexual exploits. That's something that's very Yep. Juvenile, however, it's it's it seems like um, a lot of brothers get caught in that, and because there's no new identity to latch onto afterwards, they're just they're just like, oh, okay, I'm going to revert to my junior high identity. What else is there? Well, you know, it, it is an interesting thing. This kind of um, worship of youth, youth and youth culture, mm -hmm. and you know. It perhaps also then goes with a loss of reverence of uh, experience and um, age and stuff like that. Um, it is hard to. Do you know or could you speculate on what you consider? What are the roots besides the fact that you just say okay, it's kind of, kind of all over media and so on and so forth? Well, is there something else that we could say about possible origins of this particular emphasis, or has it always been this way? Because I, I find it kind of fascinating in a certain sense. You know, one, one thing I would well, notice as, an, as someone coming from outside is that, outside America, is that mm -hmm. it, it is beyond just, let's say, African-American. It is an American thing. So high school holds, high school is like an American, that whole idea of high school is a big, um, it's this big image hovering over the heads of uh, America. So it's, uh, it's basically highly venerated, a period in your time and a set of circumstances and the people around them that is constantly looked back on, constantly made movies about. Re it, it, it's almost like, so beyond just 
you could say African-American thing. There is something about American culture. Perhaps you could say it's because it's America is about, you know, growth, strength. Um, it's it's not, in other words, it's not like, oh, we are the French people. We come from the whatever and we have mm-hmm. 10,000. It's like, no, it's more like, okay, well, we're here for uh, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, you know, some capitalism, some taking advantage of stuff, individual, blah, blah. We're to wheel and deal, in other words. Therefore, there is this celebration of vitality and youth and so on and so forth. Um, generally speaking, Americans don't age gracefully. There's that whole putting your parents in the old people home versus, let's say, if you take the Chinese, oriental, as you like to call them, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> example, then um, you would see that an opposite kind of behavior going on there. So beyond the fact that it is a, it shows itself in African-American, I see, I just notice it in America writ large, because where I'm coming from, it's quite different, more on the Asian model, more on the you respect people simply by age, even if it's two years or one year older. There's always that hierarchy established or that hierarchy has been established from a young age that there is authority that your older brother has over you beyond just the fact that it's your older brother and it's stronger than you or something, right? Right. Same thing goes in the schools and so on and so forth, where like age is venerated, but in America in general, not so much. Um, Now, how does one overcome that kind of thing? It, it's it's almost like it takes a certain amount of wisdom, maybe also a certain amount of travel, not travel maybe, but just intermingling, getting away from your group, going to the Korean church on Sunday, if church is your thing, right? Mm-hmm. Going away from uh, a particular set of people who like, you know, you always hang out with lawyers, right? And go hang out with doctors once in a while and see what's going on over there. In other words, whenever you do this kind of expansion, it it definitely affects your ability to take, using your mixed martial arts example, for example, like take from different aspects of things and use what works, even though, because no culture has everything because you have to choose something to be particularly good at and something to emphasize, right? Mm -hmm. No box is all encompassing and and shaped in infinite many different sizes or, or shapes. It's like, you pick a shape, you pick a goal, you pick a set of kind of priorities, and then you try to execute that very well. So consuming culture, I think, will be a good antidote to this particular thing you mentioned. I agree. I agree. And I often talk about that. And that uh, that's another area that we we trouble with, because when we say when we take a positive aspect of another culture, they do say that that's, you know, uh, you're acting white or you're acting Asian or something like that. And and by the way, um, just so just so no one no one thinks that I'm doing something, I don't use uh, I don't use the word Oriental as a pejorative because it's not and it shouldn't be. Um, I use the word Oriental because uh, when Americans say Asians, they mean Oriental, but they don't really. Uh, it, it, it sounds bad in an international way, and I'm pretty sure you being Nigerian, you know, can agree. If I were to say, you know. Oh yeah, I got three Asian friends and and two Indian friends. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like that that yeah. sounds kind of now it doesn't sound bad to us, mm-hmm. but it sounds bad on an international plane because Indians are are Asian. Mm-hmm. Now they're not Oriental, which is what you mean to say, mm-hmm. but you you, you kind of sound it, 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 it's it's just a bad thing. It, it's it is. You want to be more precise, and I've never heard a Oriental person complain, like you know, because it's not. 
I don't know who told society that this was, you know, but once again, don't be programmed. I don't know who told society. It's all those monkey things, right? Like none, none, of, none of us know why, yeah. why this rule exists. Exactly. I don't, I don't know why the rule exists, but no, that's, that's what they are. And that's why I call them because I'm, I'm talking about this particular group of Asians. I'm not talking about Arabic people. I'm not talking about Indian people. You know, I'm not even talking about Russians. So just to be clear, this is, this is the group that I'm talking about. Um, and that, that, that's why I do that. As far as, um, as far as the, the country itself being hyper-focused on um, a particular age group, that is something that happened to us as a result of after World War II, um, we received, okay, um, yeah, call it what you like, um, Gabe. Um, the, there's nothing inappropriate about um, there's nothing inappropriate about uh, Oriental. Anyway, um, our hyper focus, in my experience, stems from the period after um, World War II, where America received a lot of economic prosperity. What happened as a result of it was that um, a group of people, young people who didn't have any spending power and was overlooked now was looked at, you know, like you see the images of, you know, the guy in the leather jacket in the fifties with a Chevy, even though he's, he's 18 years old, you know, he's, you know, so not only were the parents prosperous, the children were too. And that opened up a new market group. So they're like, okay, let's make, um, television shows, movies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that appeals to this particular group because this group has money and they're not, they don't have um, all of their, all of their income is disposable for one. They don't really have the hangups that an adult would, nor do they have the wisdom. You have a group of people with money that spends it frivolously. Let's go. And then you're going to get an influx of all of these things that point to them. In addition to that, what came shortly after was this whole uh, don't trust people over 30. They they were separating the children from the adults mm -hmm. um, in a sense because um, they don't want the adults to influence their own children. They want they want to be the sole influencer of the children. An mm -hmm. adult will tell you something like spend sensibly, spend responsibly. Do you really need 22, a $2,200 watch? is something an adult will say. And they say, don't listen to the people over 30, listen to us. And we're saying bling bling. So um, the separation is deliberate. It's all to market goods to a group of people that have money. That so is, that's, um, that, that's where that came from. This this cool. hyper focus on the teens and 20s. They're, 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 a, prime, they're a prime market to sell goods to. I mean, if everybody think everybody who's um, 30 and over, like, think about it. Think about how much your spending habits have changed since you became, if you ever became a responsible adult. That is uh, rather unfortunate. Yeah, I, I um. so because of that, then the imagery and then all of a sudden, but it's almost like. So you're, are you saying there was more of a veneration of, el of the elderly in America? Are you saying that uh, this kind of thing whereby, in other words, to be uh, to be uh, obnoxious or ridiculous, I would say, well, 
are you saying that in the past, you know, the American grandparents used to live in the same house with their, like, you know, like their. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And okay. I could tell, I could, I could say that in my personal family, that that's the case. Well, um, the deference, the deference, um, and maybe I'm only speaking for the black community, the deference between, you know, the old and the young really started around the boomer generation. And, um, and it's funny, you know, something most West Africans, I shouldn't say, um, shouldn't just, I shouldn't just limit it to West Africans, but I, I have more experience talking to them. That's one of the first criticisms they always have. My girl, like, I can't believe you put your, your, your old in a nursing home. You know, like that's one of the first critiques that they have about American culture. That's interesting. Um, but yes. I'm sorry. I say yes, yes. That is uh, that is typical. Yeah. Um, but so it started around the generation that's one above me, the Boomer generation, and um, I think that they would be someone who's born between like 65 and um, 80, or six, 1960 and 1980, um, or somewhere there around. I don't know. Like, I think boomers are just above 55 and below 75. Let's put it like that. So sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. OK, so um, the generation there is when you kind of started to see it move astray. But what's going on with them is in addition to the parents not really uh, being taken care of by the kids, that generation didn't really take care of their kids. Yeah, and, and also that that's something also, that oh, go for it. They're also holding on to power for, for a very long time because if you noticed, uh, at least at the time of the uh, yeah, like um, Trump and uh, Biden are older than boomers, sure, just by the outside, Traditionals, yeah, yeah, they're on the outside edge there. So it has never been the case that people this old, right? This cohort, I'll put them in there and just like. I use them as an example in terms of like how old the president, running president is, right? Mm -hmm. Or and also current president. And also the fact that this particular group of people, boomers and the like, have held on to power way longer and in a way, not just not just taking care of their children, but not handing over power, right? Either gracefully or in a sense that in a way that makes sense to the younger generation as well. Not handing over power, not raising them correctly, still in power right now, and um, yeah, I know it, yeah, it's easy to get all down on the boomers, but uh, they're an interesting lot, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I talk about them often. As you know, I talk about them often on my show. But I mean, I'll, I'll put it like this, and this is this this is what I tell this is what I tell people from like Nigeria, Cameroon, uh, Ghana, and stuff like that who. And, and they all they all voice this, but they're seeing one side of it um, to where I I have a response to it. Why do you put your why do you put your old people in, in nursing homes? Why did they put their young people in daycare? So like that's my response to that. It's like, you know, I don't think you realize that it's a social contract that was broken when they behave different. You see, they weren't raised in daycare. We were. They didn't go to school with a key around their neck. We, and when I say we, I'm talking about Generation X, like myself. We did. 
you know, so it's it's like okay, like the like the Indians, and this is why I don't say stuff like Asian, so I can make this distinction. Like the Indians, they have a saying: the parents take care of the kids until the kids take care of the parents. Which is why I have friends my age who still live at home, even though they're they're high earning, you know. So no rent or mortgage or anything; they could just invest or do whatever. Um, now we don't have that luxury because the parents didn't actually take care of the kids. They they babysat for you know throughout their adolescence, but they didn't really take care of the kids. They didn't see that they got everything um, that they needed to become fully functional adults. Hmm. Um, and I think that there's a sense of that. And by the time a person gets older, they're like, you know, hey, you know, I don't, you know, you want, you you didn't really raise me in my formative years. And now you want to, you know, you want me to take care of you? That's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> hmm. You know, like it's, it's, it is. Um, but yeah, so Generation X was the first generation that wasn't really taken care of by the parents. And by taken care of, I mean, you know, where the mother is cooking for them. Um, and, you know, somebody is at home when the teacher calls if the, if the child was misbehaving or something like that. You know, a, a parent that knows all your friends' names, that like all that stuff was, was gone. We were more babysat than anything because they started a trend where both parents are um, focused on their careers and no one is really focused on the children. That's new, you know? And with that went to the lack of respect that you see now. Yeah, so there is, if we were to kind of also follow the timeline of that particular generation, you know, and that time period and the mm -hmm. changes from then, there was a whole idea now, every generation always comes around and thinks that they're the first to discover certain things. Uh, and then these, this particular generation, that came, that the 60s, they were like, all that flower stuff. It's almost like they think that they were the first to discover love or something. But generally speaking, there was um, an idea of thinking you could just change your, uh, change nature right? By simply changing your attitude. Um, it's all, everything was about the attitude now. Like, um, you know, you got to have a nice chill attitude towards things and um, live and let live, right? Don't relativism kind of stuff, right? You know, don't, uh, don't question you. I won't question me. Like who's to say who's right. Mm -hmm. And in other words, that in so doing, if you just had the right attitude towards each other, not the right reasons, not the right models, even in terms of like what we're we trying to construct here, because that's the way in which they then did not serve the family structure very well. Right? Mm -hmm. Perhaps it's a nicer way of just saying that, you know, as you said, they did not really take a vision because they were just looking at, they didn't understand that, oh, still, regardless of these attitudes you're trying to inculcate, we live in a physical universe where things have to be actually done, right? Mm -hmm. So <laughs> that it, it's uh, it's it seems like it's something that they did not quite take into uh, consideration. Um, exactly. Well, let me know when when you're ready to go. That's that's fine. But um, yeah, I think I'm gonna have to uh, wrap it up in a little bit. But you know.
Okay. Okay. I'll wrap it up soon because I um I want to talk to you about something um afterwards. Um wrote it down. Okay. So yeah, I want to talk to you something about um afterwards. So I'll wrap it up soon. Uh, so what we have with the previous generation with the boomers is we have a generation because it's a give and take. You give to your kids and those kids give to you. You know, and you take from your parents and then you give to your parents. Like it's a it's a it's an exchange. What we have with the boomers is a generation um, that took from the parents and then later attempted to take from the kids. Like, okay, I, I was raised in a traditional household and I had all these advantages as a result of being raised in a traditional um, household. So I took from the previous generation. Now I'm going to put them in a home. I'm not going to give back to that generation and I'm not going to give anything to the next generation. And then when I become of age, I am also going to request to take from that generation. It, it, it's like you say, it's a very unique generation. And they broke, you know, generations of traditions with that. That's kind of like how we found ourselves in um, in this particular. And trust me, you're not the first person from West Africa that's, a, that's asked me about that. <laughs> You know, makes, makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, but no, ideally, ideally, we would like to set something up to where, you know, maybe the millennials take care of their children and, you know, uh, not being aware the children will take care of them and, you know, reset the clock or, you know, relink the chain, so to speak. Hmm. So, yeah, um, that's um, that's pretty much it on that. Did you have anything else you want to address before we before we close up? Well, <clears throat> I would like to say that underlying all this is, on the one hand, looking at life in a way that allows you <laughs> to problem solve, in a way that allows you to see the different layers shall we say of reality in other words it's like look at the fundamental facts of what's something that happened in a cold dispassionate way without any of your story involved in it mm -hmm. and then also being able to see your story on top of it in other words um th there is you got slapped in the face right fact is something hit you in the face that's the the thing that you know that's kind of like the something some seems to be a hand hit me across the face okay. whatever. and then there's the story level of it was this guy it was sean i can't believe sean hit me in the face and blah blah blah, blah all that kind of stuff being able to move between these two levels okay gives you the ability to kind of look at life and generally speaking uh, as 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 a problem to be solved because when you look at life as a problem to be solved that's when you're not stuck in that rut of a zero sum game yeah i guess they like to call it um scarcity mindset mm -hmm. that'll lead you to be you know the backstabbing gaslighting sabotaging right right so generally speaking i called it previously making real-time critical judgments right like where you're not uh you, you're able to tackle life as it comes along and in order to do this, you're going to need to deal with your internal, the whoops and wharfs of your feelings in your body, 
and your psyche, images in your head, talking in your head, your dreams, your your uh, imaginations and things that move you in the head and also the, the way your body's constituted. So it's like you need to be able to focus in on that to get a hold of that so that you can then play out in the world that comes out you at you without so much anxiety and stress. So you can look at the world in a positive way. So that I'll have to say is, um, and any, any particular trait that people have that, or people exhibit that is counter to this. In other words, if they tend to complain, if they tend to not, if they tend to find a problem for every solution, as I have heard once heard it said, mm -hmm. um, if they tend to not see opportunities, if they tend not to try things out, if they're not even successful in one particular opportunity. Well, for example, it's like, okay, game changer, you have a bunch of friends and you guys are all software engineers. You guys do fairly okay for yourself, but there are people who like to talk about, let's say, um, things that they would like to do. And then mm -hmm. there are people who have done things and they've tried and then they've failed, but they're also successful in the things that they should be successful at. Like, let's say, you know, like, hey, you know, Carl, obviously Carl should be good at software engineering. You should at least maximize that because we that's the one. But he's also tried maybe some other businesses and failed at it. Carl is the more valuable person, right? And has skin in the game, okay? Than somebody who just tends to talk, talk, talk about it. Because mm -hmm. when you talk about it, there's that Dunning, you're still in the Dunning, the beginning parts of the Dunning-Kruger effect where you think you know more than you know. That's why you're talking about it. But the more you know, you realize that you don't really actually know and you shouldn't be saying anything about it. Plus also, it's like riding a bicycle. Most things are like riding a bicycle. So it's kind of pointless talking about riding a bicycle. It's like, I can't really tell. It doesn't, there's no information being passed along. Until you get on the bicycle, you're not really going to learn anything anyways. So the more you do stuff, the more you realize it's a, like riding a bicycle and the less you talk about it. Those kinds of people, those kinds of traits are what you want to fi find. People who do stuff, talk less, are looking at life in terms of having real-time critical thinking and problem solving. Everything else will completely derail you on your path towards success, I would say. How, okay, I'll ask this before we go. Um, how would you classify somebody? Um, for those of you who don't know, um, the, the Dunning-Kruger effect is uh, someone someone who believes themselves to be smarter than they are because they're basing their uh, accomplishments on um, on a bar that they set for themselves, I guess is the best way to describe it. Um, I think, you know what, it's a stage that everyone has to go through in learning anything new. It's just that some people will stop there. So that'll be, a, you can, you're saying a Dunning-Kruger type of person, but there's a stage when you immediately start learning something Say, oh, you know, I just finally got an insight into this whole thing about quantum physics or thing, whatever, or whatever it may be, some kind of programming, some kind of thing. And you think you know more because you kind of think, oh, yeah, I get it. I'm learning a lot. Right now. And then later on, you see it's that whole, it's the same way of just saying the more you know, the more you realize you don't know, right? Because mm -hmm. the boundary of ignorance is increasing as the circumference of the knowledge grows. You have a tiny knowledge, you have tiny boundary. So you have tiny ignorance. Like you don't know what you don't, you, you know what I mean? Your boundary of ignorance is just right there. But when you have big knowledge, you see very vast boundaries of ignorance around you. And the Dunning-Kruger effect is, you know, you're beginning to learn something, you think, oh, it's all oh, just this little small space. And then you learn more, you realize, I don't know crap. Plus you start doing it too. Anyways, I'm sorry. Go ahead. A person that, a person that uh, doesn't know how much they don't know is probably, yeah. Um, that how would you categorize somebody? Um, because you know, you say you you're you're putting people into talkers and doers. Um, 
a person who is doing, um, however, they they they're talking as they're doing, but there's some apprehension in getting it done. Like a person who's doing but not really having it done. How would you? Hmm. So I would say I'll take it back to that. There should be people like this should be evaluated on their on their having success or their track record in one particular thing. In other words, there should be something where it's like, you know what, game changer, you should you are, should be at least be a decent software engineer, like that part. Maybe mm -hmm. you're not the master of the universe yet, and at least you're trying, blah, blah, blah. But in other words, they need to have this one thing that you can be like, well, they should at least be nailing this because I know they're gifted in this area, or at least it should be simple enough for them to blah, blah, blah. And then, because if that's not there, then there's just total dysfunction in everything. So if they have one particular area, and then they're trying in another Maybe they're they can maybe they need to partner up with someone else, okay, who may have certain particular skills that they don't have in order to overcome this particular or get past this particular stage in the idea or the business or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe they need to focus more on some other aspect, find somebody, demarcate really quickly. What is this person doing? What am I doing? Or where do I need help in? Is basically because it may be that the reason for hesitation may be, I know I know it's going to involve a lot of spreadsheeting. I don't want to do any spreadsheets. You know, that may be what's holding on your holding back this idea of yours. But anyways, um, that's kind of what I would say about that type of a person in terms of you evaluating them. Or also, if it's you, then find your strength. It's another way of putting it and double down on it. Right. Mm -hmm. Find your strength, double down on it, like nail that sucker down, get a nice little anchor, you know, bring big tent ropes and make sure that your strength is secure. Then maybe later you could try to, you know, look at your weaknesses and stuff like that. But get that strength down. It's another way of saying when you're evaluating somebody, they should have one area of competence, which they should have demonstrated some level of proficiency and mastery enough to see outward outcomes and a track record in the in the real world before you then we, you know, you get what I'm saying. <laughs> I guess you. I guess you. Okay. So yeah, um, on that, uh, do you have any any closing um, thoughts? Yeah, I keep on making very long, uh, long-winded and meandering closing remarks, and then we end up with another closing remark. Yeah, true. I'm just true. have to say that it's been a pleasure. <laughs> okay. I try to, I try to, try to censor myself, or edit myself. It's been rather nice, and that basically you need to think about. I'll keep, leave three things: people inspire you, or you learn from them, or they're people whom are in the trenches with you, like they're giving you opportunities, or you're collaborating with them. Okay. And these people have certain attributes and characteristics that you should look out for. And they tend to be, again, looking at the world as a place for opportunities and so on and so forth. Therefore, you should, uh, you should avoid people who don't have that. I'll say that, and then I got to go get this delivery real quick. Okay. Okay. Well, with that, uh, stay behind, though, um, because I want, to, I want to ask you something afterwards. And with that, I want to thank the members. I want to thank the Cash Apps and Super Chats, the managers and moderators those who are listening silently and those who participate in the chat. Make sure you hit that like button on your way out. And remember, this is Game Changer 00100. Game over. Peace.